0: to see you here today for this very special episode of pick six movies now what makes it so special i am so glad you asked look you know me i'm chad cooper and here in a few minutes i'm going to be joined by my lifelong friend mr bo ransdell to start the show proper but that's not what makes it special at all Now you also know normally on Pick 6 Movies we select 6 films all related to a single theme and then on each episode we discuss the people in front of and behind the camera for one of these movies to provide some insights on how the movies were made and then on top of that we give a detailed review of each and every movie to see if they're any good. And in this episode we're going to do all of that, but this episode is supersized. It's shockingly long. We spent more time talking about the big screen adaptation of Dragnet more than any other movie we've ever discussed in the history of *Pick Six movies. Now how did that happen? Well, we kept getting distracted and a few times we kind of forgot what movie we were talking about. But I will say we had a heck of a good time laughing our way through this buddy-cop comedy that's based on a 1960s-era police drama. Now, if it's your first time here, you are in for a treat. Now, if you're a returning Pig-Six Movies fan, you are in for quite the ride-along. And without wasting any more time, let's get Mr. Bo Ransdell in here to explain to you, the good people of the world, exactly how Dragnet, a radio program, became Dragnet, a TV program, that became Dragnet, a major motion picture, that ultimately became Dragnet, the subject of this episode of Pick 6 Movies, which, if you're keeping score at home, is episode 3 of season 12's theme, As Seen on TV. Bo, why don't you get in here and give us just the facts. Good God, this is awful.
1: We and I mean Americans here, are a people who love a good crime. Maybe not you, gentle listener. Maybe you are exempt from the lure of the macabre. But you are in the minority and can skip ahead about 20 minutes and get to the jokey jokes, content that you have learned nothing and your concretized beliefs are unchallenged. Go on, skedaddle. Now, for those of you left you're my people. The people who hear the tale of Jack the Ripper and need to know more. The ones who worried over the fate of the Lindbergh baby and still puzzle over the fate of child beauty patching contestants. And that's nothing new, of course. The fascination with crime and murder has been with us, well, forever. One of the first stories in the Bible is a murder story. Cain and Abel is an old-fashioned fratricide. And as fitting on law and order as the pages of the good book. And this obsession with crime predates our obsession with police, mainly because of how relatively new police departments are in the grand scheme of things. Here in these United States, the first organized police force was in 1838 in Boston. Before that, keeping the order in communities was mostly done by watchmen, who were volunteers that kept an eye on things after dark, and often fell asleep or got loaded on account of being up all night with nothing to do in 1825. See, back in Boston, the harbor was a bustling place with lots of goods coming in and out, and people stealing those goods was becoming a real problem. The owners of the ships, and said goods, were spending money hiring people to stand guard at the docks when they had a great idea. Say, they said, what if we got the chumps who live in Boston to pay for all this security instead of us? That way, stay with me, we can make more money. All the other merchants seemed to think that was a good idea so they hoodwinked the people of boston into paying for a police force to guard shipments and other stuff too you know if they got around to it in the southern states they had a working model of local police forces only it was an abomination against man that's right america's original sin slavery figures into policing and didn't you just know that's how this was gonna go slave patrols as they were horrifyingly called existed in most larger southern communities to keep human beings kept in bondage from getting away from said lives in bondage. While technically the military of the United States kept the peace in the South in the years immediately following the Civil War, the old slave patrols quickly rose to official status as local policing operations that strictly enforced local segregation laws. You know what? This is all gross. Let's leave the South for a while. At least in Boston, the police were just corporate shills, and not total racists. So in the Northern states, there was a rise in labor unions alongside the rise of industrialization. Community business owners were getting pretty tired of hiring all these strike busters and thugs to break up picket lines. And depending on which city you were in, you were probably seeing a rise in immigration from Italians or Irish, Germans, Catholics, Eastern Europeans, basically lots of people looking to America as a place to find their fortune. Except those communities weren't crazy about neighborhoods suddenly filled with the smells of food they didn't recognize, and what's with all the talking a language that ain't American? So, of course, police forces were established in all the big cities to maintain law and order, a dog whistle even in the 19th century for anti-immigration sentiment. These turn-of-the-century cops were just as likely to break up labor strikes as rescue cats out of trees, or toss some poor Irish bastard out on his keister when the poor Irish guy stumbled into the bar with the No Irish sign on. It. In addition to the industrialization sweeping the nation, there was also the introduction of citywide party politics. The political machines were in their prime, where a couple of rich dudes could chart the course of tens of thousands of residents while being half off their ass on brandy. Because police chiefs and captains were often picked by local politicians, they might serve as a private police for the political machines, shutting down businesses rivaled to the ones owned by the political bosses. By the time Prohibition rolled around, police took payoffs to allow some bars to stay in business. These police forces were just as corrupt as the organized crime families they were portrayed as opposing in films of the 1930s. In 1929, then-President Hoover appointed the Wickersham Commission to investigate why police departments all suck so badly, what with all the institutional racism and xenophobia and grifting and all. The result of this study was that police forces were too beholden to local politics, And so there was a push towards professionalism, to an isolation from outside influences, in a sense that the police were on their own island of law. So take slave patrols, political armies, and hired goons, tell them they're in charge and no one can push them around anymore, and you may be surprised to learn that this has not always worked out so well. In an era where police forces are rife with internal corruption of one form or another, and I'm grouping systemic racism in here along with other kinds of corruptions, including financial and moral, you start to sell those same organizations, leftover military hardware, that you don't need anymore, and that sounds like a party of the most awful kind. But despite the terrible roots of modern policing, there has always been a competing narrative to the less fun truth of police in America. The myth was that all these guys in blue, or the cooler plainclothes cops who showed up after the boys in blue to rub their chins and look over the crime scene, that these guys and gals were the thin blue line separating society from chaos. Without the police, the inmates would run the asylum. We developed tropes of these cops. The haunted veteran cops. The fresh-faced young cop ready to take on the world. The good-natured cop who's just about to retire. The buddy cop. The cop and a half. The kindergarten cop. The maniac cop and many more. We're cop crazy. Even back in the late 19th and early 20th centuries when police departments were at their corrupt worst, Americans had stories like those written by Edgar Allan Poe and stories that ran in True Detective, a pulp magazine that recounted heinous murders and sold millions of copies. In the 1940s, these pulpier magazines were replaced by crime comics, but all of them featured detectives like Sam Spade and C. Auguste Dupin and Miss Marple, who were all investigating murders as amateur sleuths. But then, in 1945, Lawrence Treat published a novel by the name of The, as in Victim. In this novel, the experts weren't private detectives stumbling across murders on trains or on Nile cruises. These were real cops investigating real crime. As World War II was wrapping up and the country turned to peacetime matters, part of the American psyche was still entrenched in mystery and violence. Not only did you have comics and books, movies started to get heavy on the cops versus robbers themes too. And not just cops versus robbers, but cops doing what cops do to catch criminal. The police procedural, if you will. And Hollywood did. The Naked City, The Street With No Name, He Walked By Night, great titles that headline movies all about cops doing the gritty, filthy, sausage-making business of police work while the rest of the world went on its merry way, guarded by these urban soldiers from the true terror that lurked on city streets. In one of those movies, 1948's He Walked by Night, featured a young Jack Webb in a supporting role. Jack Webb was a radio guy who had big aspirations, and when the technical advisor on He Walks by Night, an LAPD detective named Marty Wynn, Suggested to Webb that a police procedural might work just as well on the radio as it did on the big screen, Webb knew that was a great idea. And the very next year, Dragnet premiered on the radio. Much like America's obsession with true crime, the popularity of Dragnet ebbed and flowed, but it proved surprisingly resistant to death. When Webb started, the whole idea was to do a show that was realistic in presenting the day-to-day trials of work in the Los Angeles Police Department without melodramatic acting or flourishes to paint the shows as anything but authentic. And it began with an iconic line that would change radio and television forever.
2: Ladies and gentlemen, the story you are about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent.
1: Yeah, it's a little bit like the beginning of Law and Order, ain't it? Well, Dragnet excelled on radio. And made the leap to television in 1951, where you could actually see Joe Friday, Jack Webb's iconic cop, smoke Chesterfields instead of just talk about smoking Chesterfields on the radio show. Initially, Webb shied away from the plum role of the the by-the-books cop, afraid he wasn't the right guy for television. But the networks insisted, wisely, and Webb appeared in, as well as directed, the show. This initial run of Dragnet was all black and white, populated by radio actors who were all striving for the most realistic deliveries possible to maintain the verite approach. And the show did gangbusters. For the first few years, anyways. The popularity waned in 57, and by 1959, it was out of the top 30 shows and subsequently canceled. Webb tried his hand at some writing afterwards and took on some small parts in movies, but nothing quite panned out. In 1963, he got a job taking over the detective show 77 Sunset Strip. And the resulting changes from Webb's more, let's say, mainstream ethos sent the show into a cancellation death spin. Once that show was done, Webb and actor Jeffrey Hunter formed their own production company to make shows their own way. The first out of the gate, Temple Houston. A story about the lawyer relative of Sam Houston. It was a rushed mess of a show and only lasted one season. By 1966, Webb was hot on the idea of a new Dragnet series, and wrote a TV movie-length episode that would reunite Webb with Joe Friday and would reintroduce the world to Dragnet. The TV movie was a hit, and the show was brought back as a mid-season replacement. The year was added to the title, so the show would forever be known as Dragnet 67 or Dragnet 68, etc. And it set its tone right off the bat. Here's a line from the first episode of the Dragnet revival, Dragnet 67, as Joe Friday grills Blue Boy a hippie what's your
2: name son you can see my name if you look hard enough come on now what's your name don't you know my name my name's blue boy what do you think joe card wheels no sugar cubes i'll make you book he's been dropping that acid we've been hearing about
1: yes it's very silly and campy now but at the time it must have felt like murder she wrote for the hippies and yippies who saw this as their grandparents television show it was either terribly out of touch or terribly comforting while hiding its head in the sand, depending on how you looked at it. By 1970, Webb decided that he wanted to put the wraps on Dragnet so he could focus on his new production company, Mark Seven Productions. Most of these were procedurals too, of one kind or another. The DA, O'Hara United States Treasury, and Emergency, which was his last bona fide hit. Jack Webb was working on a 1983 revival of Dragnet when he popped a valve and left us in 1982. Webb loved the institutions of government, and that very American story of blue-collar folks who went to work every day to put their lives on the lines for their fellow Americans, that was the America Jack Webb lived in, or wanted to, and it was the America he certainly portrayed. In many ways, Dragnet is as much a part of our myth of American police as anything else, and it influenced all the police procedurals that came after. Shows like Hill Street Blues and the aforementioned Law and Order In CSI and all those spinoffs, literal decades of television can be charted back to a radio show from 1949 and the Chesterfield smooth voice and clipped demeanor of its creator. And of course, our obsession with true crime in general is at a new high. Podcasts and documentaries and television series and movies, my own pet theory is that in times of turmoil and upheaval, we all become a little bit more interested in how dark things can get. A peek into the... There but for the grace of God go eyes of the world. As we see the world around us become something unfamiliar, the old stories first told by Victorian Gaslight are strangely comforting in their familiarity, if not in their content. But speaking of bad content, did you know they made a movie called Dragnet? And not that TV movie from 1966. And did you know Oscar winner Tom Hanks was in it? And did you know Oscar nominee Dan Aykroyd was in it too? And did you further know that Dan Aykroyd was an Oscar nominee? Yeah, for Driving Miss Daisy. I forgot too. Anyway, Dan Aykroyd had been doing a Joe Friday impression for years. The first time he pulled it out publicly, his impression of Friday, I mean, was on an episode of Saturday Night Live way back in 1976. He and one of the SNL writers, a guy named Alan Zweibel, had written a script all about Joe Friday's nephew, which had them in stitches, I'm sure. They shot the script around some, and Universal brought in writer Tom Mankiewicz to clean the script up. Aykroyd, whose bonkers script for the original Ghostbusters is a thing of Hollywood legend, bristled but fell in line with Mankiewicz's changes. Mankiewicz was a big deal after having done cleanup work on Superman 1 and 2, along with writing Lady Hawk, which is one of the best movies about a couple that turns into animals you're likely to see starring Matthew Broderick. Anywho, Mankiewicz didn't like the director Universal wanted at the helm of the Dragnet movie, so they said to Tom Mankiewicz, if you think you're so smart, why don't you direct the movie? And so he did. The script called for a wise cracking sidekick to Aykroyd's Straight Laced Friday, and so they went to the most wise crackingest of all actors, Jim Belushi. But he was busy, so they went with what Hollywood has come to think of as the guy you get when you can't get Jim Belushi, Tom Hanks. Now, Hanks' star was on the rise, but there were plenty of duds in the mix to make his movie future anything but certain. While Splash and Bachelor Party hit in 1984, his attempt to capitalize with starring turns in Volunteers and The Man with One Red Shoe and Nothing in Common were all middling to poor outings. His real break, Big, wouldn't come for a couple more years. He was closer to the days of playing crazy LARPers and Mazes and Monsters than being an Oscar winner. Still, he got the co-starring role as the energetic Pep Streeback, and we were off. We'll get to the film itself in just a second, but it was a reasonable hit for the studio, and reasonably critically received. All this reasonableness is maybe the reason it's not well remembered. Hanks would, of course, go on to fame and fortune as the guy who gets Meg Ryan at the end of the movie, and Aykroyd would go on to make a great vodka and a cool skull decanter. Minkowicz passed away in 2010, but left behind an impressive body of work. I particularly admire his deep involvement with the show Heart to Heart, and how there hasn't been a big screen adaptation of that, I'll never know. The film has weirdly become an artifact of its time, more notable for being an early Tom Hanks role than as a skewering of Dragnet, because that's not what it was. At the heart of both the show and the movie, there is an optimism in a belief in institutions that feels quaint now. But enough of this maudlin examination of the reality encroaching on shared myth. Let's do some dumb voices and make some poop jokes. Chad, get in here. Ladies and gentlemen, Guy and Girl Fridays, it's 1987's Dragnet. Hey there, everyone. Welcome back to Pick 6 Movies. This is Season 12, Episode 3? Episode 3. Yeah, geez, boy. Time flies (laughs) when you're (laughs) living in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. I, of course, am Bo Ranstall with me as ever, the pep to my Strebeck, The pep in my Strebeck. maybe. Mm -hmm. Uh, Chad Cooper, how are you, sir?
0: I'm doing well, Bo. I'm excited to talk about Dragnet.
1: Sure you are. Let's just get this out of the way right now. There is no way that a movie that is so blindly pro-police could ever be made in the current circumstance. Let's just acknowledge for a second that this movie thinks that the police are the best.
0: I don't think most movies featuring police officers made in the late 70s until probably 2003 could be made today.
1: That's right. Lethal
0: Weapon, anything involving Dirty Harry Callahan.
1: I'd say you get away with
0: Serpico, Copland. (laughs) You could do Copland because the cops are the bad guys. Well, except for one cop. Maybe Training Day. Yeah, you could pull that
1: off. End of Watch, which is that really good Jake Gyllenhaal movie.
3: Mm
0: -hmm.
1: These are all films where the the cops are the villains. That's not the movie we're talking about tonight. We are talking about Dragnet.
0: I want to see that remake of Police Academy they keep promising right now. (laughs)
1: Oh, boy. (laughs) Mahoney and his wacky gang get hold of a bunch of leftover defense department equipment and just roll into a mob of protesters shooting off their rubber bullets and tear gas and pepper grenades you know hijinks that would be an unfortunate movie probably be in poor taste at at this particular place in time
0: well the good news is that no movies are ever going to be shown in movie theaters ever again so you could watch it in the privacy of your own home and make your own judgments
1: finally we're getting to that ultimate World where we all just self isolate to the point that we just become our own little tribes of weirdos. I'm down with that. It's really what I've been wanting all along.
0: But you know what's not a very good movie? Dragnet.
1: Uh, do I disagree with that? I don't know. Let's talk about it.
0: You noted in your show Open that this movie has two really big movie stars mm-hmm. by today's standards, but I just kind of wanted to at least provide a little bit more context and get your perspective on where their careers were when these movies were made. Okay, so. So I submit that Dan Aykroyd has made three good comedies in his career. The Blues Brothers, Trading Places, and the original Ghostbusters. Everything else is not very good.
1: All right, let me review that as we're talking, but go on.
0: Let me just submit a few uh, exhibits. He was in Gross Point Blank.
1: That's a great movie.
0: Well, that's like saying he was in Temple of Doom. Neighbors, Coneheads, Couch Trip, Great Outdoors, My Stepmother is an Alien, Loose Cannons, Nothing But Trouble, Exit to Eden, a movie where Dan Aykroyd and Rosie O'Donnell go undercover at a private resort island for BDSM enthusiast. And that movie was directed by Gary Marshall, brother to Penny and the guy who brought us Pretty Woman.
1: That got made because Anne Rice wrote it, right? That's no excuse for anything. You're absolutely right. No, look, Nobody is going <laughs> to defend Exit Eden on this program.
0: I think some people will argue that Spies Like Us is funny, it's or that. maybe it has some funny moments, but that is a movie, in my opinion, that tries way too hard to entertain you. It doesn't age well. Not because it's racist or homophobic, which it probably is. I haven't seen it in quite some time. It's just one of those movies that the physical comedy and letting Chevy Chase and Dan Aykroyd just sort of riff Mm -hmm. doesn't work as well by today's comedic standards. Because Chevy Chase is an asshole.
1: I like Coneheads Despite Myself. I think it's a, a fine movie. I don't think it's a great movie. I think it's fine. And there are some pretty funny moments in it.
0: I mean, do you give him credit for Driving Miss Daisy? He's just better in dramatic roles than he was in comedic roles. He was in that My Girl movie, mm-hmm. which he served his purpose there. You mentioned that he got his Oscar nod for playing The Sun and Driving Miss Daisy. He was good in Sneakers, which was kind of a comedic role. But let's be honest, he's just playing himself as a conspiracy theorist adult Manchild.
1: Oh, it's the best. But no, you're right. Like he's he when he did Dragnet, he's coming off spies like us. Ghostbusters is a few years ago by this point. Mm-hmm. It's one of his last big starring roles. After My Stepmother Is an Alien was probably the last thing <laughs> where it was like we're gonna let Dan Aykroyd try to carry this movie, and nope. they were like, oh, this is a bad idea. It turns out the thing I like about Dan Aykroyd is when he goes for a character, he really goes for it which is sort of what I like about Dragnet there is no irony in Dan Aykroyd's performance he clearly is invested in this
0: Let's talk a little bit about Tom Hanks and what was going on in his world. Yeah. Because at the time this movie was made, he was doing his best interpretation of Michael Keaton and Bill Murray with a dash of Steve Gutenberg for just flavor. And don't get me wrong. I loved Tom Hanks and everything that he was putting out at this time. But this is not the Tom Hanks who went on to make movies that your dad and your grandpa loved to watch because he was making, as you noted in the open, Splash and Bachelor Party and Voluntary. Volunteers and the money pit and nothing in common with Jackie Gleason. And starting out with his work in Bosom Buddies, and he was the original drunk uncle on family ties. And Bo, he was on an episode of Happy Days where he played a guy seeking revenge on Arthur Fonzarelli, and he showed up and he kicks the Fonz's ass.
1: Who knew Tom Hanks was so tough? Not the Fonz, because he got his ass kicked by him. I don't recall this episode, but surely by the end of it, Tom Hanks got his comeuppance from the Fonz.
0: So here's what happens. All right. For those, <laughs> yeah, uh, for, for everybody who doesn't care, which is everybody, uh-huh. just skip ahead about 30 or 40 seconds. Uh-huh. The Fonz picked on this guy when he was a kid, Tom Hanks. Uh-huh. And then Tom Hanks spent his whole life learning martial arts to come back and kick the Fonz's ass. Uh-huh. And then he comes in and the Fonz's like, you can have one shot at me. And Tom Hanks does a roundhouse kick. And this is all taking place inside Al's, AKA Arnold's. Sure. And he kicks the Fonz in the chest and knocks him backwards through this window out out of the restaurant and then tom hanks does that wheeze laugh that he's so famous for yeah. and then everybody's like holy shit the Fonz just got killed or something and he's like he's the greatest thing in the world and then the Fonz comes walking in the live audience goes ape shit you are like oh the Fonz is gonna kick this dude's ass but his comeuppance is really essentially the Fonz saying i had that coming you were in the right i treated you badly now let's be friends and so they end um in a good place
1: that's nice. I'm glad it worked out like that. I
0: know. Welcome back to the show everyone who skipped ahead of that boring story from the early, early 1980s. Yeah, check the
1: the chapter demarcation in the notes. <laughs> This movie, he still had not made big. This is not the Tom Hanks you know, as you said. This is the Tom Hanks that was famous. Yeah, you knew who he was. Yeah. But he wasn't the actor you counted on for good entertainment. No, 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 no. He was just like, he was a funny guy.
0: He was on the cusp of going on to have a career that would be filled with multiple Academy Award nominations and accolades and the love of the country, which is kind of the opposite of what was going to happen to Dan Acklord's (laughs) career.
1: Most importantly, this is three years before the defining role. In Joe versus the Volcano. Sure. One of the best movies of all time, except for the third act.
0: Other than that, it's great. But I also want to give a little more context to not only their careers, but when Dragnet came out in 87, it really set the stage for a wave of future remakes of these classic 1960s shows. There was My Favorite Martian and Mm -hmm. the Beverly Hillbillies. There was Car 54, Where Are You?, Mikhail's Navy, Sergeant Bilko, Leave It to Beaver, Dennis the Menace. They all came out, bam, 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 back to back to back over the next like six, seven years. And all of those movies to one degree or another were terrible. And so, (laughs) you know, they all have one thing in common with Dragnet that they're garbage. Let me ask you a question because I thought about this a lot with this season. I I think that the reason a lot of these motion pictures that were made that are based on TV shows is just that they have built-in marketing appeal. It is the insert TV show name here movie. And then it's like, well, then we're going to cast this person who looks like the person you would expect to play this character and you're going to kind of draw an audiences and people just seem to show up out of this nostalgic obligation or a love of the source material or alternately there's just a curiosity of execution like how are they going to do this i once saw a wild west version of william shakespeare's comedy of errors purely out of curiosity uh-huh. in fact i remember you once called me up on the phone and it was about the time that dragnet came out And you said, hey, man, they're making a big screen adaptation of Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. Uh And I immediately was sad because I was like, there's no way that that can be done. And then you informed me that Terry Gilliam was directing. And I was immediately happy because if anybody could do it, that's your guy. Sure. Yeah. And Johnny Depp was going to play Hunter Thompson. And I was totally in because this was Johnny Depp coming off of Gilbert Grape and Ed Wood. And he had not evolved into this caricature of himself, you know, that we know now. and. I was one of those people that saw fear and loathing out of a love of the source material and a curiosity of execution. It was the same thing that happened to me when I saw Gus Mansant's Even Cowgirls Get the Blues, but that movie was
2: a fucking nightmare. <laughs>
1: yeah, you know? yeah, it was still an interesting disaster. He was going for an adaptation of that book, which seems impossible and it turns yes. out it is <laughs> like that was one of the cases where you roll the dice like can we make this a movie nope nope we sure can even cowgirls get the blues only works as a book <laughs> sorry It's a great book, but it's a shitty movie.
0: It feels like all of these 1960s inspired movies were just hastily put together. And they were just kind of these uninspired retreads of shows from a bygone era. And Dragnet really led the way to this parade of unwanted, disappointing wastes of time and money.
1: And I think part of it too, man, is that this is the age the producers were. These were the shows that were on when they were kids. They
0: got old enough that they get to call the shots and that's what they want to make. Right. Let me ask you another question about adaptation. And, and really, this conversation is relevant to all of the movies that we're discussing this season. And in my opinion, it seems that these types of adaptations of TV shows, there's a handful of ways that they can be treated. The, the, number one is that the movie is a faithful adaptation of the show, like what you saw in The Flintstones or The Adams Family movies, I think, are that way. I think that there are some that could argue that uh, the Transformers movies, at least the first one, tried to do that as well. And a second way that you can adapt a TV show to a film is is that you do it in a very self-aware, self-deprecating fashion, where the movie knows it's based on a TV show, and the audience knows it's based on a TV show, and then you just have fun with it. Like in those Brady Bunch movies, they did that relatively well. Betty Thomas, who was on Hill Street Blues, she directed the first one of those movies, and she also directed the prequel to 28 Days Later, where Sandra Bullock is an alcoholic in a movie called 28 Days.
1: I forgot that that movie ended with Sandy Bullock getting the like blood in her eye that, mm-hmm. and freaking out with the rage <laughs> virus. That's it. pretty cool. Here's the good news. She kicked the booze. She now has a craving for human flesh and the, the gnashing of teeth. You trade one vice for another, Bo. That's how it always works. What are you going to do? You're going to blow up like a, a house. You smoke too much. That's just cancer. Eh, why not go with the rage virus, quite frankly.
0: <laughs> I want to submit that there's a third way to adapt a TV show to a movie. That's where you just sort of slap the characters from the show into a poorly constructed plot. You reference the TV show here and there, and you really just don't... Don't seem to give a shit about making a quality
1: movie at all.
0: Now, of those three options, Bo, which one do you think Dragnet is? I'm gonna give you a
1: hint, it's number three. Here's the problem is that the movie is not called Jerry Caesar the movie.
0: (laughs) No, that's what it should have been. But
1: before we get to Jerry Caesar, (laughs) which we will I'm done uh, with
0: context now.
1: First we have to get to what this movie begins with, which is like the Dragnet opening. It's like shots of Los Angeles and some babes. And there's this whole Joe Friday narration which which i've got this written down if you want to hear the whole thing
0: but i 100 expected to hear it
1: this is the city los angeles california interfacing humanity representing every race color (laughs) creed and persuasion that god no matter how he is worshiped chose in his infinite wisdom to deposit here in the cultural nexus of the pacific rim almost four million people work and play here and like any other place anywhere there are those who have it And those who want it, those who have it, enjoy it, no matter how they got it. Those who want it can get it by attempting to better themselves in a sympathetic community populated by decent citizens cheering them on. Or else, they can try to take it the easy way. Because even in the City of Angels, from time to time, some halos slip. That's where I come in. Doing my job to the best of my ability on a daily basis. I work here. I carry a badge.
2: Dum, dum. Right.
1: And then danger dum, ahead plays.
2: Dum,
1: dum. And so that sets the tone for the film. And it's Joe Friday, a.k.a. Dan Aykroyd, marching into the police station. You also get a glimpse here of the ghost of Ass's future, where you see, like, Dan Aykroyd's <laughs> haunches for the first time. And you're like, he's got kind of a big ass. And knowing what we know now, it's like, oh, he's got a real big ass. It's... This was just, this was like before you hydrated it.
0: Joe Friday is a real Fox news kind of guy. American exceptionalism, individual responsibility, red meat, six pack, second amendment. Everybody knows their place. And if you don't, Joe Friday will show it to you. And if not, he'll show you the exit to this great land of ours, buddy.
1: And at some point when he's addressing you, when he thinks you're wrong, he's going to slip in a Mr. Or th- a, that, bub. a bub or a Mr. Yeah. As he marches in. Into the police station we get the actual titles which is like a big badge and flashing colors and lights and close-ups and a remix of the original dragnet theme by a band called the art of noise which is the most 80s thing a band can be called
0: it is almost about
1: just the facts ma'am just the facts ma'am
0: it's awful this is that moment in the movie where you're like oh I've made a terrible mistake like honey can we we could leave across the hall we're like it's like 20 minutes it just started we could whatever. I don't even know what the movie is showing over there but it's gonna be better than this I
1: think it's The Journey of Natty Gan I heard that was good it's Pippi Longstocking I I, I don't even know what. it's The New Adventures of Pippi Longstocking I heard it was a delight Light
0: <laughs> and these opening credits waste our time as they normally do.
1: Normally, I'm the defender here, where I'm like, "Look, these are hardworking people. They deserve for their work to be seen." <sighs> This is Dragnet, people. You throw up the badge, you say Dragnet, you play the remix for 12 seconds. Let's get to the actual meat of this movie.
0: The whole open of this film doesn't matter. It just allows those perpetually late assholes of the world that can't get to a movie theater on time a little extra wiggle room to get their asses in the seats before the movie begins proper. Nothing you saw mattered up until this point. And then we hear this narrator that says, Ladies and gentlemen, the story you're about to see is true. The names have been changed to protect the innocent which is 100% bullshit this is only here because this is what they would do in the tv show yeah. and presumably the writers of the dragnet tv show that they would just look through the paper and see a story that says hippies on lsd and like hey we got an episode like knife fighting in all girl school there's another episode nazis stole a bunch of dynamite and they're gonna commit hate crimes that's eh, the season finale this stuff writes itself people
1: boy if there's one thing i can't stand it's when nazis get their hands on dynamite well this will <laughs> blow you away you're about to go downtown
0: not one frame of this movie is anywhere close to being based on actual events. And then the narrator does this thing that's really unusual and says all of the names have been changed. For example, George Baker is now called Sylvia Wiss. Right. Now, we're going to come back to that a little bit later. Yes, that is almost
1: entirely in Alan's Why Bell
0: but it is so disruptive in the flow of the movie uh-huh. that if you come in and try to apply a little bit of like deconstructive back to the future logic, the whole movie falls apart just because of this one line.
1: But then you have to start to wonder like what is the, the true nature of the magazines that Jerry Caesar is publishing.
0: They're homosexual pornography. Yes. That's what they are.
1: <laughs> yeah. I never looked at Giftworth in the mouth. <laughs>
0: When you hear this line, it feels like a throwaway. I remember seeing this movie in the theater Uh and thinking, oh, this is going to be kind of like the naked gun, that the movie is sort of winking at the audience. We're all in on the joke. We're going to have a good time. You know what? Just get ready for a little meta humor. And quite honestly, you can unfasten your seatbelts because this movie is not going to go off-roading at all. No,
1: just a little bit of goofery is all. Once we (laughs) set up this joke that's going to pay off frustratingly later, we open on and fire it at this warehouse where it's Caesar Publishing. It's their warehouse, which includes, Chad, as we see on the side of a building, such magazines as Bait, mm-hmm. Field and Cream. Yep and Cable Girls.
0: So bait is probably in reference to jailbait, right? Like a <laughs> euphemism for young girls with whom sexual contact would land a <laughs> suitor in jail due to various statutory rape laws.
1: I read it as naked models with stuffed animal predators, like bears and jackals, <laughs> hyenas. Okay, that's what you're into? Great. It's what I want, Chad. What did
0: you think Field and Cream was? <laughs> Just a spin off of that, but more for the outdoor? Doorsman who enjoys masturbating out in nature or something?
1: What is known as bareback milking, Chad? It's... <laughs> Jesus Christ. It's just milking a cow with a pail in a field.
0: These are naked women but... oh, never mind. Oh. What was Cable Girls?
1: Cable Girls are just girls dressed as cable repair or installation people who show up naked to your house is how I read that one.
2: I'm thinking maybe Roger Ailes saw this movie and he thought, what if Cable Girls <laughs> What about a network that hired only women suitable for pornography?" and magazines that could be published that men could look at and see everything. And what if we only showed news that was honest and Christian that men like Joe Friday would enjoy? It would be a sensation on cable news. What if the women who reported the news had hair as blonde as their dresses were red? The kind of network that would make Rumpelstiltskin himself pass out from ecstasy. Just looking at their locks. Whose morals were as big as their boobs.
0: <laughs> Outside this warehouse of pornography, there's all these fire trucks. It's not like the kind of trucks that are there to put out fires. These look like bread delivery trucks that are just painted red to be part of the fire brigade. And there's a bunch of firemen and they're just loading boxes of pornography into the backs of these trucks.
1: As saxophone <laughs> music plays dude this soundtrack it just looked at hey what was the beverly hills cop soundtrack and how do we do that shittier
0: get me the guy from lethal weapon
1: yeah they got harold (laughs) (laughs) Fartemeyer. they're stealing this porn in these tonka truck fire trucks right here's a scene that's never gonna happen in the world after the internet because ain't nobody going to warehouses for porn anymore Mm -mm. it's right here as i talk to you chad on my screen that's <laughs> how i record it's how i relax so a cop shows up and is like hey he's a night security guard And it's like hey it seems weird that all these dudes who look more like boxers than firemen are just dumping gasoline everywhere and carrying boxes of shit out of this warehouse mm-hmm. so he goes to ask the head firefighter one presumes who- you know
0: how you can tell he's a head firefighter because <laughs> he's the biggest one with the bushiest mustache
1: <laughs> that's what i was gonna say he's the tallest like that's how they maintain order in the firehouse is everybody lines up at the beginning of the day you're in charge
0: Mm -hmm. and it's jack o'halloran who was the third bad guy in the original superman movie and the sequel superman 2 his name was non was that his name was it i think and he he was also joe perco in that 1976 remake of king kong that we featured on this very podcast
1: he played kong yes (laughs) no he didn't oh i'm sorry no he played jeff bridges which was an amazing performance
0: kong was played by
1: rick baker yeah yeah yeah.
0: played by Rick Baker.
1: That's Jack O'Halloran right. played Jeff Bridges. So Jack O'Halloran, he's the police chief in this. Most famous for Superman 2 even though neither of us can remember what his name was in that movie. It's but not. I'm sure you're right. It was just like he was the dumb one, you know. In this film he is playing Abel muzz Is his name, which is one of the greatest villain names that's ever been in a movie. Sounds like a Dick Tracy villain. He looks like a Dick Tracy villain. So the cop is like, "Hey pal, what are you doing? Uh where's the fire?" Get your damn hands
0: off that porno. <laughs> And Emil Muzz says,
1: where's the fire? Right here. And then pulls a Molotov cocktail out of his fire coat like Captain Caveman. Mm-hmm. And then just <laughs> throws it into the warehouse. Yep. And then, then Chad exp- explained this to me. He knocks out the guard and then says, I got a message for Jerry Caesar. And it's like, wait, <laughs> you just knocked out your messenger. This is all wasted oxygen.
0: This place is burning up like the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory. And he's looking at his scribbled notes on his hand and he can't remember should he read the left hand first or the right hand first it's like give him warning message knock him out
1: i'm just enjoying the reference to one of history's greatest american tragedies of this warehouse fire our factory fire that killed children <laughs> children chad <laughs> it's a comedy show we're doing it's history bo
0: i don't care how many statues of emo muzz you're gonna tear down (laughs) you
1: cannot erase what happened edutainment is what i've said the show is for some time and no no time like the present you will learn about a factory fire on this program so after he knocks out this guy it says like tell jerry caesar he's out of business which is a real backwards way of going about all this then he gives the world's worst grin That has ever happened on film and tosses down a, a card that has the name pagan on it.
0: The camera holds on his face while he smiles for about a second and a half longer than it should. And I know that doesn't seem like a long period of time, but he's grinning and nodding like for two more head bounces than what the editor should have allowed. And when he drops these cards, it says pagan, and there's a goat head symbol on it. You know, worshipping the devil was kind of a big thing in pop culture in the 80s, kind of going into the 90s. It was starting to fade out here. Hey, Bo, this movie looks like shit, by the way. (laughs) It
1: it looks like a TV movie.
0: (laughs) My next note is, it looks like it was shot on a TV show budget. (laughs) This movie looks like garbage. To,
1: To think that this movie came after Ghostbusters. Like, how did Dan Aykroyd not look at it daily and be like, nope they don't look like that. I've seen movies and they don't look like that. That looks like television.
0: Why is there a live studio audience
1: here? Don't get me wrong, I appreciate the craft (laughs) services. A real tight ship they run with the Wheat Thins and the Crackers.
0: In the very next scene this movie makes a decision that is inexcusable, in my opinion, in how it executes the narrative of this story. So we're in Los Angeles and we're at the City Hall and Joe Friday says it was a Wednesday January 7th. A cool breeze was blowing from the southwest at 17 miles per hour and you know Ackroyd's doing this Jack Webb impression which is pretty good I guess I don't know who the hell else was doing a Jack Webb impression and then Joe Friday goes on to say that um, he still occupies the same desk that his uncle Joe Friday used when he was a sergeant and at this point this movie became Son of Mask or Ace Ventura Jr. or Disney's The Descendants it is not necessary for Joe Friday to be genetically related to the original original Joe Friday.
1: So would he just be in the this universe the original Joe Friday?
0: Yeah, you just make him a straight lace Joe stick. He's just, he's Joe Friday doing the impression. Fred Flintstone wasn't the great nephew of Neanderthal Fred Flintstone. I don't need this 23andMe connection for audiences to believe that this movie has created a universe where Joe Friday must have direct lineage to the TV show. You know, I don't have
1: a big problem with that. I think it makes as much sense as anything?
0: It doesn't make any sense
1: that he (laughs) looks like his uncle. He acts like his uncle. He sits at the
0: same desk at his uncle. Unless the original Joe Friday was actually his biological father, which, holy shit, if that's the case, maybe Joe Friday was fucking this guy's mom and then she had the baby and she's like, oh, Joe Friday's your uncle. Maybe you could grow up and be a police officer just like your father. I mean, your uncle.
1: (laughs) Yes, sir. Mom used to send me out of the room when Uncle Joe would come over
2: oh oh
1: oh oh your mother really loves you <laughs> yes sir she does huh huh, huh. <laughs> now that makes more sense <laughs> i like this movie more already when he comes in joe friday has has noted the desk of his partner frank smith and it's like hey my my shithead partner hasn't shown up and he's got a shitty desk and th- this is where harry morgan as frank gannon captain gannon in this film shows up and is like hey frank's not gonna be in today joe and there's a whole gag about like oh 24 hour flu and he's like no he's not gonna be in tomorrow either 48 uh which is fine it's a, it's a good little joke yeah nice little shot across the bow joke not a knee slapper but uh, it's it's amusing then he's like now there was this goat farm that frank smith always wanted and that's what he's done he's left it was too painful to talk to joe and tell him that he was quitting so he just left him this note joe Freddy says yep yeah, everyone's got a dream and that goat farm was his i understand that captain but what about the people of los angeles the 3.6 million people who are expecting him to be on the job today you think they'll understand
0: Is Joe Friday autistic?
1: That's kind of the thing. Like, that's how he's presented in this film as being, if not autistic, a little touch of uh, like Asperger's or something where he's totally functional, but just completely obsessed with being a carbon copy of his uncle.
0: How does Captain Gannon respond to that? Could you imagine that there's this nephew, wink, wink, of your former partner who looks like him, dresses like him, has a black and white photo of him on his desk.
1: He brings brings him up all the time like fucking Norman Bates' mother. He's like, "How, how would your uncle feel about your behavior right now, Joe? Captain Gannon knows that Jack Webb, he took care of business.
0: Even if that's not the case, how would you deal with this type of bizarre imitation of a dead relative? I get that Jim Belushi made a whole career of it, and Joaquin Phoenix you know, kind of did too, but
1: Joe Friday? He should be bounced right out of this station, and then he goes to meet his new partner, Chad. Mm -hmm. And now, here's one of my problems with the movie, is it seems like Joe Friday is presented as the ridiculous character of the film. Yes. And then you go to this scene where he he is introduced to tom hanks who plays pep strebeck
3: mm-hmm. is his
1: name in this movie that name's ridiculous bo he enters like jack sparrow in a car being towed where yeah. like the door falls off and he's dressed like he's homeless and there's a whole scene where tom hanks is like hey i'll be your new partner
0: not looking like that you aren't there's a dress code for detectives in robbery and homicide section 3 105.10.22.25.256 it specifies a clean shirt short hair tie press trousers sport jacket or suit, leather shoes with a high shine on them. And then we immediately cut to sometime in the very near future where Strebeck has taken a shower and put on clothes to where he could go be a substitute teacher or maybe the cool assistant principal who plays drums in a band on the weekend. Friday gives some voiceover. He's like, Strebeck cleaned up his act. And for the first time, I was rolling onto the streets with a new partner by my side. And then Strebeck does that mid-air jerk off hand motion behind Joe Friday.
1: The what I call, yeah, is your order right? on the screen motion.
0: The pairing of these two actors and their respective characters doesn't really make sense. To your point, Strebeck is the wild card. He's kind of the out-of-control partner, your Riggs, if you will. Mm -hmm. Whereas Friday is the straight-laced by-the-books cop or your Murtaugh to complete the analogy. And I'm going to get into this a little bit more, but it doesn't seem to make sense that you have these two characters of the wild card and the straight arrow, but their behavior is such that it doesn't really align. Like, for example, Joe Friday smokes cigarettes. It would make a little more sense, in my opinion, for Strebeck to be the smoker. There are things about their diet habits or their sexual proclivity that doesn't really align when you start to interchange these characteristics across by the books and sort of operating outside of the norms of police work or just society in general.
1: The problem is you've got two clowns and no straight men in this movie.
0: And as we learn from Wild Wild West, that does not work.
1: Right. Keeping with a the theme of both not enough straight men and also rap music to close out a film. The two films are tied in in more ways than one.
0: <laughs> a decade Plus, apart.
1: It's a real, like, those who do not learn history are doomed to repeat it scenario. There's some narration about how Pep has to be a good cop, despite how he looked. The fact that he carried a badge meant he deserved my respect. The Los Angeles Police Department deigned that he was worthy to be a detective and therefore worthy of my admiration, you know, that kind of stuff.
0: Yeah, but we like Strebeck more than we like Joe Friday. Joe Friday looks like a kind of guy who's got corpses of missing hookers and rotting dead dogs in the crawl space of his house house because when street gets into his patrol car he's like commenting on his height and his weight and all of the interesting things that joe friday has learned about his new partner after doing a background check on him joe friday is a fucking weirdo man
1: he was six feet tall 165 pounds if you x-rayed him just right you could see the last thing he ate was a two plates of sushi spring rolls also a california spicy roll he dresses to the left. Boxers, not briefs. Also, a tangier smell than you'd expect.
0: As they're driving around, Strebeck is eating rice cake patties. So he's kind of health conscious in this movie. A little more on that later.
1: And listening to a Walkman too, like bopping along
0: and, hey! He's doing Tom Hanks from that period of time.
2: <laughs>
0: right,
1: it's the, oh, paprika,
3: I'm the happiest spice in the world.
1: <laughs> like, it is that Tom Hanks, which is a great Tom Hanks to have in your movie. Well, depending upon which movie you're making, Right. You need his partner to be straight laced, but not with Asperger's. A sociopathic.
0: <laughs> serial killer
1: yeah and so the joke here is that joe friday is driving super slow and hanks is like you know joe you can speed up friday's like maybe this is all greek to you mister but do you ever think that driving seven miles below the speed limit saves the taxpayers of los angeles eight cents a mile and he's like yeah this just looks bad man <laughs> like we look like assholes and so they arrive at the <laughs> zoo and there's more joe friday lines about like
0: you know Streeback, these animals have it pretty good simulated sur- roundings three squares a day these creatures could talk they'd give the citizens of the city a big thanks i'm like you know what i think that that's how joe friday frames up all of the people that he's put in jail you know it's, <laughs> right. it's really better for them on the inside they're making friends learning a trade having lots of sexual intercourse occasionally consensual if you're into that kind of thing which i'm not stop looking at me like that
1: have you ever considered that privatizing jails creates jobs the more of these <laughs> felons we put away boards more money in the pockets of uncle sam
0: only there was a news channel that would present this type of information to the american people they would just report and we would decide
1: welcome to the friday factor you want the news i'm giving you just the facts man can you believe these people telling president trump he needs to wear a mask not on my watch mister The president doesn't hide for nothing, not even a virus.
0: Dennis Miller saw this movie. Hey, babe. I got an idea for a show. (laughs) Yeah. More on him later. Yeah, yeah. Spoilers. Um, (laughs) The zookeeper takes them over to this boa constrictor enclosure where a snake has gone missing. And then they go over to a fruit tree where a bat was stolen. And lastly, they go over to the lion enclosure where the robbers stole a lion's mane, but left the lion with a mohawk. But in reality, Bo, this is just a female lion and the filmmakers slapped a fake mohawk hawk on top of its head. Right. And I think this is supposed to be a joke. Luckily, Tom Hanks is here and his performance as Strebeck occasionally will surprise you with a genuine chuckle and one happens in this scene.
1: <laughs> so Joe Friday is like, "Look at that whatever pervert did that is ruining lions forever for these children. You think any of these kids are ever going to want to come to a zoo and look at a lion again Strebeck?"
0: Friday, "Don't worry. The lion's mane's going to grow back."
1: Yeah. Well, how are those kids going to know that?
0: Kids it'll will grow back. Yay! Yay!
1: And that is Dragnet Theater by Pick Six Movies.
0: But Tom Hanks saves the day. When he just has casual, offhanded remark, I'm like, this is idiotic. What yeah. am I doing here?
1: How much am I getting paid? It's a funny delivery, because like, both of them are trying in this movie, and that's part of the problem, is that you have two comedic <laughs> actors both like jockeying for the joke in the scene. There's the old story, Chad, about when Yul Brenner and Steve McQueen were on the set of Magnificent Seven. Mm-hmm. And you can see this on Facebook. both of them personally and their agents fought about who was the star of the movie like Steve McQueen was on the way up Yul Brynner was kind of on the way down but both of them wanted the name above the title kind of thing
0: Sounds like Penny Marshall and Cindy Williams, but go
1: on. If you watch Magnificent Seven, any scene where you see Yul Brynner delivering a line and Steve McQueen is also in the scene, he is kicking his boot, he's picking his teeth, he is doing anything he can to draw his eye to you
0: (laughs) instead of Yul Brynner. It's been years since I've seen that, but now I have a reason to go back and watch it again.
1: It's an amazing movie, not for the least reason that it features one of the greatest full film fuck you's of cinema go on you will we're all interested in what you're saying i guess but it's the same kind of thing here where you just got two actors in a scene both trying to be the star of that scene And I don't think it's their fault. I think it's just how the characters are written. You
0: saying that reminded me of a documentary I saw years ago called The Celluloid Closet. It was like the history of homosexuality in cinema. And at that time, the documentary ended with Philadelphia talking about Tom Hanks. But in it, there was an examination of Ben-Hur, where Charlton Heston, playing Ben-Hur, when he comes back from battling overseas, he embraces his friend whose character I cannot remember the name of. It's a scene where they throw the spears and they hit the exact same point up on the cross. Bars. And they came to Charlton Heston and said, hey, when you come back, you're going to embrace your friend. And the two of you had previously been lovers. And so when you come back here and he's like, it's like, whoa, whoa, whoa. We were what? <laughs> like, well, yeah, you were lovers at the time. You had had a, a romantic physical. I'm not." doing that who do you think
2: you're talking to get your hands
0: off! and so when you watch the scene the actor who is playing against him is playing it as though they had been lovers whereas charlton heston is just walking around leading with his chin checking out all of the sexy female extras that are around but understanding that context of what's going on is always fascinating in cinema history
1: yes daryl i see you i'm not ignoring (laughs) you no i knew him in college it was you know we roomed together for a little while it's it's nothing really yo no daryl we'll definitely get coffee sometime we'll talk all about how we knew each other back then
0: friday narrates that arsonist posing as los angeles city fireman left a pagan card at a burned down warehouse we were advised to contact the owner of the stolen merchandise softcore porno lord jerry caesar at his notorious pleasure compound in the coveted bel-air section of the city
1: let me tell you one of my favorite jokes in this whole movie because it's really dumb but i really like it when they drive up to this place it's got one of those speakers like the the old school 80s speakers you hit the button Mm -hmm. and they're like yes except the way that the ladies of bait magazine answer the buzz at the gate is thank god vibrator repair a
0: couple of questions one is vibrator repair a real job
1: mobile vibrator repair Chad not even just like hey we gotta send it into the manufacturer we got mobile vans strolling up do you
0: learn that at a trade school
1: you have to apprentice to a master vibrator repairman who will show you the ins and outs of of the business
0: (laughs) whoa 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 slow down buddy you're gonna start out on rubber dildos you're not (laughs) jumping right to the vibrators hey you come in here acting like you own the place now look if you're lucky if you're lucky the rare few will graduate up to pocket pussies but I got can't make it. any promises there all right
1: look i've seen some of the best wash out and spend their lives repairing fleshlights <laughs> is that how you want to end up kid
0: does joe friday look like a vibrator repairman in this film uh, but i
1: don't think they could see him i think it's just a voice thing i don't think there's like a closed circuit camera if i was a
0: vibrator repairman mm-hmm. i would get my hands on one of those uncommissioned oscar Wiener mobiles and like give it a fresh paint job and call it like down there pleasure repair
1: I would call mine resurrection. Resurrection. Oh, that's even better. <laughs> resurrection vibrator repair. See you later, broken vibrator. Wink, wink. We'll have it repaired in three days.
0: Then you just go buy a new one, charge them twice as much.
1: Uh huh. Hallelujah! My vibrator is repaired. Says the ad. Then you sell the old used ones
0: to some guy who can make a buck or two over in some Asian country? You got. You're making money coming and going. Yeah, Pun intended.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're you're selling the new ones. on markup to the ladies you repair the busted ones you sell those to the real doll weirdos
0: (laughs) like in the fact that it's used is a selling point no 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 this thing's it's got quite a few miles on it
1: not so gently used if you get my drift
0: (laughs) smell this yeah I'll take three.
1: This one comes with a certificate.
0: Friday and Strebeck, they roll onto this compound. And there are all of these lovely young women in khaki shorts and white taint tops and tan ball caps and no bras. And they're working in the gardens. That's all full of naked statuary, like some of them in sexual embrace. And it's all accompanied by even more 1980s, sexy saxophone
1: music. It's like if at the Playboy Mansion, all the playmates had to earn their keep. You know, where it's like, you got to go prove bushes or do landscaping or cook or something. You're not just laying around.
0: Saxophones are the instrument of sexy time, right? Or at least in the eighties and banjos were the instruments of incest and harmonicas were the instruments that bridged sentences when you were telling the story of why you had the blues and then xylophones were the instruments of sneaking skeletons. And then tubas were for when fat people were walking around.
1: That all tracks. Okay. And the bassoon, I think, was the wolf. They roll up into Jerry Caesar's bait pad. Thank God. And get to one of the best things about this movie. It's a girl coming out of the building or the compound. <laughs> the, the, the sex compound. Tom Hanks is like, Hey! Hey!
0: who you are and joe friday belches out a plume of smoke that looks like he's trying to win a vaping contest it's
1: just blinding right where he's like you'll miss april and you like bobbing for apples which is weird but you don't like smoking well what is it that you don't like and she's like smokers and she takes the cigarette out of joe friday's mouth then she's like hey let me take you to jerry then they point to dabney coleman
0: dabney coleman for those who don't know he is the walking talking embodiment of a scumbag
1: I'm sure he's a lovely guy, but he plays an asshole. No, I don't think he is. God
0: rest his soul if he's dead. He's not. (laughs) Who's a bigger prick, Dabney Coleman or Ted Knight?
1: Oh, man. I mean, you're right in the high country. (laughs) It's Dabney Coleman. It's Dabney Coleman because even in his sitcom, at least in Too Close for Comfort, Ted Knight was kind of friendly. Whereas in Buffalo Bill, the Dabney Coleman sitcom, he also just played an asshole.
0: What about Dabney Coleman and Alan Rickman?
1: Oh, uh, Dabney Coleman for sure. Alan Rickman starred in romantic comedies and was actually compelling and good in them. And believable. What
0: about Dabney Coleman against William Atherton? Peck from Ghostbusters. Uh, And Real Genius
1: yeah yeah coleman Coleman. yeah dabney coleman because because he'll stab you in an alley like atherton will be sarcastic and make you feel bad but coleman push come to shove he'll get you in the liver so he'll see the dark blood
0: if you were to say to dabney coleman you didn't say pretty please he's gonna kick you in the dick
1: yes yes
0: he's not gonna look at you go would you please turn off
1: (laughs) he would light a cigar (laughs) off of your burning corpse
2: and then put it out on your cheek Uh uh-huh get who's got
1: the upper hand now um, but all right, so here's the thing. So let, let's get to the best let's character in the movie. So Jerry Caesar is Dabney Coleman, who's amazing. And and really, the movie Odyssey is nine to five because he's incredible in that.
0: Bo, take your time here. Spend as much time with this scene as you want because he's laying by the pool. There's 25 bikini clad women everywhere.
1: Amazing wraparound sunglasses flinked by babes in lounge chairs. He's got a full body
0: robe as he is sunbathing. Yes. His full chair has a yellow and white tiger stripe fur throw underneath him.
1: I don't know if I noticed (laughs) that. So they show up and they're like, we heard your warehouse got robbed. And he's like, yeah, the 25th anniversary of
0: Bait Magazine. He has the greatest lisp in cinema history since Leon Phelps, the ladies man. I think that Tim Meadows may have been inspired by Dabdy Coleman's performance in creating Leon Phelps.
1: He kind of pitches his voice high and he has a list but it doesn't sound gay.
0: It's like an octave below Mike Tyson. Right.
1: It's not like he's doing a caricature. He's just a dude who talks this way.
0: It's about time I called you cops about three hours ago.
1: Yeah. Just because I wouldn't print their manifesto. They went through my magazine. (laughs) Jeff Friday says could you describe what's
0: missing? And Jerry Caesar says uh yeah how about the entire run that is every single copy of the 25th anniversary double issue of Beat Magazine.
1: When Jeff. Friday asks him, how much is the run worth? <laughs> Jerry Caesar's response is, let's just the more than you'll ever think in your whole life.
0: And I do that every month. So before you rush back to your little apartment and start polishing your pennies, so why don't you get out there and find my magazines? At one point, Streeback tells Friday, he's like, Bates a magazine. Friday's like, yeah, I know that. And Jerry Caesar says, you say the intelligent subscriber described it as a politically oriented, socially impacting monthly. And I'm not going to be bullied around by some cement heads because I ref- to publish their stupid manifesto
1: this wraps up with joe friday saying listen hotshot, i'm gonna tell you something right now i don't care for you or the putrid sludge you're trawling out but until they change the laws and put you sleaze kings out of business my job is to help you get your stench ridden boxes of smut back and since i'll be doing it holding my nose i'll be doing it with one hand
0: That's when Strebeck needs to make his jerk-off motion.
1: (laughs) But here's the thing. I like that this character in this movie is so uncompromisingly out of time and place. Like, does it make sense? No. But I like the fact that he is Jack Webb from Dragnet. And I think Ackroyd does an amazing job of kind of channeling that character. And when he kind of gets in Dabney Coleman's face, like, this scene is what the whole movie should be. Jerry Caesar
0: retorts, My publishing company is a private enterprise and not a." platform for any Yahoo to publish whatever they want. I don't care how many copies they buy. Just because they have First Amendment rights that don't mean I have to publish the junk. I got First Amendment rights too. Look him up, Friday. And I'm like, dude, he's right. Jerry Caesar, softcore porno king and amateur constitutionalist.
1: Yeah, and of course, Friday's response is, I don't need to look him up. I can quote him to you, pal. (laughs) And again, that's why I like Dan Aykroyd (laughs) in this role, is that he is just, he is just that dude. Like, he inhabits that character. You put Dabney Coleman doing his character and Dan Aykroyd doing his character in a movie where you have another straight man and you got yourself a great film.
0: Which is also funny because at the end of the movie, spoilers, Dabney Coleman turns out to be the good guy or a good guy. He hasn't done anything wrong. In fact, he's donating money to charity. He's running a
1: business. He is a co-conspirator. He's kind of along for the ride, at
0: least. He's a businessman. (laughs) I also want to point out that during this whole scene by the pool, there's a half-empty bottle of Miller genuine draft (laughs) sitting on the table behind Jerry Caesar.
1: Yeah, the champagne of beer.
0: (laughs) I really like that it's there just to give more color to Jerry Caesar. Or honestly, I think that maybe a member of the crew forgot it was there when they were doing a light check before filming. Either way, I'm good with that. We also haven't pointed out what was going on with Pep Striebeck while Joe Friday and Jerry Caesar are having their little tete-a-tete. One of these bait mates, as they call them, is sitting there licking her lips and sticking her tongue in and out. And he's like making kissy Suck faces with her as well. And I don't know as an audience member how I'm supposed to feel about this. Like, does that make him seem more like a cad? Does it make him seem more endearing? It's strange to see Tom Hanks making crude sexual advances to a woman who's probably 16. What's a year
1: or two? Yeah, he's probably a sex addict in this movie. Given the number of times it's just like Pep Strebeck was once again making friends with some of our sisters in law enforcement by once again having a one night affair that does nothing to fill the hole inside him because his mother left
0: about this time an older woman and she looks like she's in her 40s she comes over and reminds jerry caesar that he has a collagen treatment and he's also going to get his pores sucked at three o'clock and bo that's code for something else but it's not what you think
1: oh is it a blowjob no it's not what i think then <laughs> but she compliments joe friday you're a good looking man you've got really big hands then she says hey what do you think of these and then flashes her tits not that you see them or anything this is all relatively pg film and he just freezes like his eyes lock on him like real deer in headlights
0: dude he doesn't waver he doesn't look away <laughs> yeah. conversely pep Streeback he does a quick double take and then sort of shifts his head in embarrassment the way most normal heterosexual men on planet earth would react
1: right it's the seinfeld you get a sense of them and you look away
0: now we got to point out that pep strebeck recognizes this woman as sylvia
1: wiss yes
0: who as the narrator told us at the beginning of the film had her character's name changed from george baker that's right so this means that in the reality that this is based on george baker walked up to
2: the equivalent of joe friday and flashed his cock is that what happened
1: (laughs) Hey, take a look at this thing.
2: You got big hands there. Hey, does this look like the cock of a 43-year-old
0: man? No, it doesn't look like the cock of a 43-year-old man. In fact, it's quite impressive, bordering on spectacular.
1: And Hanks is like, (laughs) hey, I think I left my uh, (laughs) notebook in the car, and uh, you and Miss Wiss can uh, talk some (laughs) more. (laughs) And then he takes off. Joe Friday is like, sorry, Miss Wiss, gotta go.
0: Hey, where are you going? We were just going to party. We are going to have a a good time. I got more genuine high life in the coolers no ice in it but they were cold when i bought them they're probably still
1: a little bit cold no sir i'm getting back to work
2: do you have 20 dollars that i could hold for a little bit
1: i'm calling the police and then (laughs) tom hanks is like hey she wanted to have sex with you and joe friday is like let's go find that notebook you lost Strebeck.
2: Hey, I didn't lose a
0: notebook. I was trying to get out of here so that you could have sex with that man woman.
1: like I'm just a little confused right now, is all let's go get some lunch. And so that's what they do. They go get some lunch, and it's uh one of those fish out of water things where it's like Hanks is eating this plate of fruit. But it, again, it's like one person should be having just a sandwich, and the other person should be having something crazy, not hey, here's an entire plate of fruit, and then here's Friday having chili dogs.
0: Why wouldn't Friday be eating the nutritious food? And Strebeck is the slob who's eating the bad food and then friday is telling him that food is not good for you because what happens here is that strebeck is like hey those things are full of nitrates and band-aids and rat guts you know what's in that you need to eat more
1: healthy and show friday is like look between the cigarettes <laughs> this is the only advice i have so how about you back the fuck off pal
0: i don't think so let's get a couple of canines to sniff around wherever the hell you live you're <laughs> <laughs> not gonna have to be there too long and you're gonna be in the backseat of a patrol car you weirdo
1: look nobody goes into mother's room
0: and Strebeck is eating the fruit plate with chopsticks.
1: Yeah, well, this just looks a little weird. Yes, you can use your fingers, a plastic fork of some kind. You don't need chopsticks, unless he just had his own, and I don't think that was the case.
0: If Strebeck is meant to be this hippy dippy, healthy, new age California cop, I almost feel like that the two of them shouldn't be the same age, and they clearly look—they're within like two, three years of one another. And Strebeck should be played by somebody younger, or you have Joe Friday, who arguably should be old. Older. Yeah. And you also can't tag Strebeck with all of the creepy sex behavior and his Rain Man level of retention when it comes to baitmates' do's and don'ts. And then also have him be like, my body is a temple, but I'll fuck anything that moves. It's all mixed up. <laughs> As
1: 311 pointed out, Chad, it's all mixed up and don't know what to do. As they're having this conversation about bug excrement and the chili dogs, behind them, their police cars being stolen, a la the movie Running Scared, a far superior buddy cop movie
0: yeah that is not a movie we will ever talk about on this
1: show only in passing because it's too good is what you're saying absolutely okay
0: oh no oh
1: adam robertson ding captain i I, look i can pretty much do that movie from memory
2: call it all cars call it all cars it's ufo michigan avenue
1: look he's got these really cheeseball locks up here you can just push right in again he's got this briefcase full of money right here (laughs) (laughs) It's a really good movie.
0: How that never got a sequel is beyond me.
1: I run into way too many people who just aren't familiar with that movie at all. And that blows my mind. It's one of those movies I'm like, how did you not watch this 30 times? And every time you were like, you know what? Maybe there is one too many Michael McDonald songs in this. But that's really the biggest flaw. (laughs) I
0: think it's usually because Running Scared was sitting on the shelf next to that Pat Morita, Jay Leno, Buddy Cop shit Sure, Like, you're like, yeah, I'm not watching this. Yeah right but one of those has talented Billy people Crystal and Gregory Hines right really Jimmy Smith is the bad guy what
1: but it's also Peter Hyams directing it
0: Joey Pants is comic relief
1: <laughs> right yeah they couldn't get Joe Pesci Snake could you be any dumber <laughs> what movie are we talking about oh yeah yeah Dragon. so anyway back at the station after their car is stolen Joe Friday is given Tom Hanks a real dressing down for leaving the keys in the car and then Captain Stupid Captain Gatton calls him in and is like hey I need you guys to investigate a chemical theft uh he's like you need to be careful out there by the way because these pagan guys are stealing cop cars and fire trucks captain (laughs) and so they get a ford subcompact is their new car Mm -hmm. and they go to question the engineer about this theft of of stolen gas and where they found a pagan card left behind and the thing that i like about this is the use of the phrase pseudo hallucinogenic compound cyanison it's one of those gags that it's. It's just funny to hear somebody say that in this way. The owner of the rail line or tanker or whatever is like, yeah, they stole this drug and also the pseudo hallucinogenic compound cyanison. And Joe Friday goes, pseudo hallucinogenic compound cyanison. Uh-huh. And it's a funny gag.
0: Owner of the chemical company is Peter Leeds, who played George the Drunk on the original Dragnet TV show. Remember when town drunks were a stock character on TV shows?
1: That was a simpler time, wasn't it? It all goes back to Otis. From yeah. the Andy Griffith show, who had the key to his own cell, and would just let him... Foster Brooks. <laughs> okay, he's a stand-up
0: comedian who's a raging alcoholic. You mean Dean Martin? No, Foster Brooks. It's a character.
1: Yeah, that's right. It's a character. <laughs> like the movie Lenny. It's all make ups
0: The chemical plant owner says, if you mix these chemicals together, it makes a fertilizer that's also deadly to breathe. Hey, kind of like <laughs> your aftershave, huh?
1: Says Tom Hanks. You're just like, oh, just settle down,
0: bub. You're crossing a line there. My mother gave this to me. She said it was my father's favorite scent. I never met him. Never.
1: What you're smelling is a scrap of flesh that came from my nana. I (laughs) keep it in the breast pocket of this jacket, mister.
0: We cut to Joe Friday and Pep Strebeck. And they're at this magazine stand out on the streets. And Joe Friday, he picks up a copy of a magazine called Moral American Companion. But let me point out that when he picks up this magazine, magazine. It's under this long drawn-out chain, and it is directly next to all of the male nude pornography, including magazines called Jock, Play Guy, and Inches.
1: All featuring George <laughs> Baker on the covers. On a Kawasaki motorcycle. Bending over <laughs> George Baker shows it all.
0: I think that Joe Friday's magazine of choice, Moral American Companion, was one of those periodicals for repressed men in the 80s that just couldn't come out as being gay because america just kept them in the closet but you know you kind of pick it up and thumb through it and it's full of a bunch of homosexual vampire erotica and other fantasy fiction that allows some sort of a release because society at large denied them the opportunity to live the life you truly want to lead
1: Oh, look. This month, it's a bunch of college boys holding rifles. Mm. That's inspiring.
0: Volleyball. The new rage across the Navy and the Air Force. (laughs) That's gonna end badly.
1: Hmm. This is just a printout of the lyrics to playing with the boys. Seems like a good ditty. (laughs) Hmm. A full-page ad from Iceman to Maverick. I really dig what you're putting down. Sounds like a future episode.
0: A full interview with George Michael. I definitely want to read that. Hope he can someday find a lovely woman to settle down with.
1: Maybe he can get out of the shadow of that other guy from Wham.
0: Send your emails to Bo Ransdor, big 6 movies <laughs> moviescom
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. All protest goes to me. <laughs> but the whole point of this scene ultimately is that on the TV at this bodega, there's the Christopher Plummer. Welcome to the movie! I think of him as the Klingon from Star Trek VI, which is, for my money, the second best Star Trek movie. He's been in a million things. Like, Christopher Plummer's an incredibly famous and accomplished actor, but in this case, he is the Reverend Whirly, mm-hmm. and he is a local minister. Is
0: this like a public access show that he's hosting? Is that what your read on this was? Or
1: like a syndicated thing locally or something. I don't know that it's okay. full. We're going to show up here at the studio and put on a show, everyone. <laughs> he's got an
0: organization called MAMA. It's M-A-M-A, the Moral Advanced Movement of America. Yeah. So you have an acronym called MAMA, and the mysterious group is called Pagan. This is a real mystery incorporated type of a clue we got here Bo,
1: and he's doing some interview with the commissioner of yeah. police jane kirkpatrick is the character's name yeah and what we learn is that joe friday is a big fan of the reverend Worley here
0: pep strebeck says hey you seen this guy <laughs> what a middle And then not surprisingly, Joe Friday says, this happens to be one of my favorite shows because Joe Friday is just what some social and sexual misfit who has some deep, dark secrets that nobody knows about. Not even himself. He kind of just blacks out and wakes up and cleans up the room and hopes there's no evidence around.
1: Look, when I go home, I pour myself a tall glass of distilled water, sit myself in the recliner, put a pair of clothespins on my nipples, and I watch this till I fall asleep, bub.
0: I shoot up heroin between my toes. All ten of them.
1: I do exactly one sixteenth of a gram in between each toe. (laughs) It gets me the right kind of high and no one will ever know. You know what I mean? Pep. With a name like Pep, I I know you know what I mean. You've chased the dragon, (laughs) haven't you, Strebeck? You've gone to those smoke-filled rooms where all the writing is in some kind of oriental language. (laughs)
0: police commissioner jane says
2: what an honor it is to have you choose los angeles to be the focal point of your moral advancement for the movement of america reverend
1: that's an eerily good impression thank you this movie came out as we
0: noted earlier in 87 so ronald reagan was still president and just a few months prior to this movie's release jim baker he resigned because he got caught fucking jessica hahn and we're just a few years away from jimmy swaggart's sexual scandal and so this movie was was kind of right on the nose about pointing out how religious leaders are more than likely to be up to no good, which is what happens in this movie.
1: Missed the kids thing by about 25 years, which is unfortunate, but all right, They may have missed the target, but at least they hit the tree. Yeah, there's a couple of generations of kids who appreciate that.
0: Reverend Worley says, when you want to make change to the financial markets, you go to New York, and when you want to change politics,
2: you go to D.C. But when you want to tackle pornography, filth, crime, and degradation, you go to Los Angeles. And
0: Police Commissioner Jane... She kind of shakes her head like, hey, look, Bob, you're
2: calling me out. Like, you need to fucking pump the brakes on that shit. I got an elected office.
1: So after they watch the TV show, what with the commissioner and Reverend Worley, they go to this shitty motel where these pagan carts were reported, Uh which is run by this angry old lady who I assume is the landlady or she's just her mean neighbor. Hard to say.
0: It's played by Kathleen Freeman, who was Sister Mary Stigmata in the Blues Brothers.
1: (laughs) You think Dan Aykroyd was like, hey, nice to see you again. Yeah. <laughs> Here's some vodka I'm working on. It's not quite right yet. Danny,
0: it's me, Kathleen. I need work. I really need
1: work. I'll tell you what needs a workout. Your ability to think for yourself. Look, do you know what's going on at Area 51? Kathleen, have you ever seen a crystal skull?
0: I did like when they went to this motel that the swimming pool had been filled with sand to make it either the saddest children's playground ever or the world's most awesome litter box. It had like a little big wheel in it and a couple of deflated basketballs. That Made me laugh.
1: There are some nice touches here. There, again, if the movie didn't look like—I hate to use this example, given that you know Carl Reiner just passed away—but like the jerk is not a great-looking movie, and I think you can kind of forgive that for both time and budget. Whereas this was like a big-budget movie. It's like this movie looks like it was shot nineteen seventy-eight for twenty thousand dollars.
0: Yeah, you can forgive that. I mean, Clerks doesn't look good, but it pulls off what it pulls off. This just looks like shit.
1: It looks really flat. There's no depth to any of the images and stuff. I mean, that's kind of getting into the nuts and bolts of, like, just how to shoot a scene well, but it just looks bad. It looks like an episode of Hill Street Blues.
0: It looks like a TV show, which maybe they're arguing, like, like, exactly. Right. We were capturing right. the essence of Dragnet and putting it on the big screen. Like, no, you weren't. Because explain the car chase in a few minutes. Well, we can't. It just looks like shit. Exactly.
1: So, as they're questioning this old lady, she, she
0: curses a whole lot. Right. She's like, you to asshole motherfuckers well she I say motherfucker but she gets close
1: sure and she hands over pagan cards and there's a music sting like when you find a clue in uncharted where ding, 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 ding. yeah it was like hey we got a clue in drag and then she's like I threw that scum sucking slut wallows stuff in the garbage all his magazines gross
0: and she says they stole her wedding dress <laughs> right which is not important but it is eh, it's mentioned
1: you know exactly. Joe Friday is like hey let I could throw the book at you for n- swearing at cops. And she's like, Hey, I didn't have to call anybody down here. I just did it because people like me, I have a hot goddamn it. And it's a really <laughs> good goddamn it. You know, I'm a fan. I know. And this is a pretty good one. This is a pretty good goddamn it.
0: I have a story for the listeners. Do you mean to tell it, Bo? <laughs> if this involves <laughs> elevators, then
1: by all means.
0: So a lot of times I share stories with Bo that he doesn't know about me. And Bo knows a lot of stories about me. There's a story about me and Bo that most people don't oh, know. So as I was moving out of college my final year, I had lived previously with my brother who had a friend who was a real weirdo, and he had a box full of real low-grade pornography. And as I moved from one apartment to another, I took it with me, and I didn't really want to touch it because the guy was a dirtbag. And it was really gross, but I thought there may be something funny to do with this. So my final semester in college, it was just tucked away, and Bo helped me move out of <laughs> my apartment, and we found this box of pornography. We're like, well, what can we do with it? So As we packed everything up into a van to move away, we called both of the elevators down from the 10-story apartment building that I lived in, um, put them on hold, and then wallpapered the floors of the elevators with really offensive pornography, and then drove off giggling, knowing that college coeds would be dinging their way to head back to their apartments, and then they would be repulsed by pornography.
1: Yeah, it was a terrible thing to do. It was so
0: funny. We laughed so hard. I'm glad that we've grown up
1: is trying to toss the magazines in in such a way that they would kind of flutter open and the real Yahtzee was like oh it opened on a like a really graphic deli meat kind of shot
0: it was a moment of like i'm not touching this i'm not touching it well one of us has to touch it i'll touch it if you touch it all right as soon as we got done it's like we've got to go wash our
1: hands. we had to go through one of those like silkwood fumigation tunnels of somebody scrubbing us with a long brush and
0: i just pulled out a lighter ran it under my fingers trying not to burn off my
1: fingerprints yeah i still can't be printed
0: back to our movie they dig through the trash they find a big thing of trash and they put it on a park bench and they're poking through it and they find a polaroid picture and it's of two women and they're clearly at muscle beach yes and even if you've never been to muscle beach you know they're at muscle beach because the sign behind them you see the last two letters of muscle and the first two letters of beach so i've never been there and i immediately am I'm like well, that's muscle beach and it's like muscular women in 1980s leotards and they're showing off their giant muscles and they're like hmm this might be a clue bub so look in the back and there's a phone number which immediately i'm like that is either to get a prostitute to come visit you or to have someone deliver you cocaine it's one or the other or both
1: if you're lucky it's the same service hi i'm amber
0: and here's a huge bag of cocaine that'll be ten thousand dollars
1: i go around the world and at the end of the destination is an eight ball
0: we get a gag where strebeck and joe friday they go payphone to payphone trying to find that'll work and then they eventually find one but there's like eight people lined up to use the phone what i can see one or two people waiting but eight in line are these just friends of the producers like i can get you in the movie just get in that line
1: but then as they continue to look you realize that every other phone within a a mile is busted or not working or cursed by witches or whatever the fuck so it takes them for like and and the gag doesn't go anywhere it's not a great gag and it's one of those moments where you're like this could easily be trimmed this whole thing could go joe friday
0: dials it and the voice that answers is that lady looking for a vibrator repair service.
2: And she's like, hello, is this the vibrator repair, man? I still need my vibrator repaired.
0: He's like, I'm Joe Friday. We're looking for Emo Muzz, the bad guy from Superman 2. I'm a police officer. Just take my word for it. Tell me where he is.
1: Oh, Considering he's Jerry Caesar's driver, I guess he's at the pier.
0: Do you know any vibrator repairmen who could
2: come out and repair my vibrator?
1: What I mean is I can't get off without my vibrator (laughs) and it being in a state of disrepair. (laughs) Makes it very difficult for me to achieve orgasm. That's kind of my thing.
0: No, ma'am. I can't help you. Click. Ring, ring, ring.
1: (laughs) Hello, it's me again.
0: Uh, I was waiting in line to use this phone. A police officer just ran off. Can I help you?
1: Look, I'm in need of a vibrator repairman. Now, I don't know if that's your trade per se, but you (laughs) seem like an honest soul. If I give you an address, can you try to repair a vibrator?
2: Is this Vincent Price? Click. Oh no.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I've been found out. It's one of the weirder things we've ever done on this show. Oh, shit so they go to the pier and sure enough there's Emil Muzz sleeping on the job <laughs> well, of course he's a driver what <laughs> he, he ain't driving anywhere what the fuck is he gonna do they go over to him and they are, you know there's a gag he's like hey look here's the description from the foul mouth lady big dumb stupid looking perfect match strebeck and so they go over to the window and as soon as they wake him up he's just like fuck you cops and takes off as uh-huh. as a villain would do and he runs over uh dan Aykroyd's feet who mugs for the camera yeah but it's a pretty good mug in fairness it's a if you're gonna do a comic face might as well be that one yeah and then hanks drives and there there's a chase around the pier the most notable thing here for me is dan Aykroyd in the jack webb voice saying look out muppets eh, that makes me laugh
0: in the subtitles it's spelled muppets
1: really uh-huh did they not have the license for the subtitles but it's okay in the movie i don't know i thought it was weird too i was like. like. Why did he say Mop It? Look out, unregistered puppets. (laughs) Completely above board, unlicensed, (laughs) RIP... puppets (laughs) puppets <laughs> look out
0: so they the car chase ends unceremoniously as they crash into lifeguard stand or something and so they take emil Muzz downtown to interrogate him
1: the best part of all of this is that when he emil muz crashes into this lifeguard stand joe friday's line is surfs up beach boy but not for you you'll be hanging tin downtown it's pretty good i'm good with that in the movie
0: once they go to interrogate him emil Muzz hocks a loogie into the face of joe friday that is only bested by that kid on weirdo yankovic's children's television show halfway through uhf
1: it's pretty good yeah hanks ducks out of the way and hits dad Aykroyd. and this is the point where tom hanks is like hey joe
0: why don't you go get us some coffee some coffee i'm not thirsty oh i get it strebeck i'll be
1: back with some wink wink coffee i get it you want to abuse a prisoner without me looking thanks pal <laughs> thanks for keeping me out of the investigation <laughs> he he leaves and Tom Hanks is like hey (laughs) hey you you know what's gonna be real fun Emil you got a silly name it's just you and me and your balls in this drawer and then he just pulls this drawer out and slams it shut and I guess what's happening is that when he's pulling the drawer out Emil balls are slipping into the open slot I don't understand the physics of this at all furniture physics
0: of this do not make any sense at all because if he's pulling the drawer out and banging it in no drawer I've ever, maybe he, he had a boner and his dick was going up into the drawer and he was smashing his cock. Anyway, the guy's basically getting his dick hammered by a drawer opening and closing by Pep Street.
1: It's the IKEA Ballstog. Yeah. <laughs> uh, for those who like the practicality and new design of contemporary <laughs> furniture, but also enjoy cock and ball torture, this is the table for you. If you remember
0: when it was funny in a movie for a cop to act outside of the the law and just take things into his or her own hands and administer their own personal brand of justice remember when that was something that you're like yeah copper go do that
1: it's astonishing <laughs> how gleeful this movie is about yeah kind of fuck law right everybody grab an uzi just start spraying bullets everywhere hey straight got a tank. we'll get to it later but it's it's a real cavalier attitude with like yeah yeah you're fine you're part of the team You're not a real police officer or nothing, but you might as well have a tank. And his crippled
0: testicles, they just start singing like canaries. So Strebeck and Joe Friday, they find out that there's going to be this big gathering of the members of Pagan. So they go down and get dressed up in undercover street gang member attire. And Joe Friday is wearing black army boots, green pants, a yellow and red plaid shirt, a biker jacket, a yellow wig that has a red mohawk. And he looks like the background character in a Muppet biker bar.
1: Or anyone in the background of a Street Fighter video game.
0: Yeah, just kind of bending their knees and bouncing up
1: and down. Yeah, cheering on Zangief, you know.
0: Now, Streeback, he's wearing dark maroon pants, this deep crimson shirt. He's got suspenders, a hairnet. He has a fake mustache. And he looks like he should be heading for a shift at the Olympia restaurant to tell people, no Coke, only Pepsi, cheeseburger,
1: cheeseburger, cheeseburger. He looks like a Latino fishmonger. I don't know what that looks like, but it's what Tom Hanks looks like in this movie.
0: So our two cops, they drive up this canyon road to the pagan meeting, and then they get pulled over by a couple of other police officers, one of which is played by Peter Acroyd, you know, the poor man's Jim Belushi.
1: If Jim Belushi is too highfalutin. <laughs> Give me Peter Acroyd. I've only got $17 and a coupon to sizzler. Who is the Jim Belushi we don't like? Peter Aykroyd. Where's his number? Oh yeah, Chase the Garbage Truck. I got Gary Scaleri's number. Who?
0: Gary skillet
1: I don't need
2: Gary skillet
1: <laughs> Who's on the phone? <laughs> Nina Zamasco. Hey, one Zamasco in Hollywood. That's it. It's Casey <laughs> or bust. Andy Gutenberg? Nope. I got Carl Pesci? No. I don't have Carl Pesci kind of money. I've got a Richie Buscemi on the phone. Uh, now you got something. <laughs> <laughs> you know,
0: he's the less handsome of the
1: Buscemi brothers. They found him inside his older brother's body
0: when he was four years old, and they carved him. Him out. He walks on
1: his arms, but he can still deliver a line if you need him to. They share a psychic connection. It was actually Richie mishibi who came up with the Chet line from Barton Fink. <laughs> now he looks a little bit like Basket Case. He, remember, he was cut from his brother by a brilliant surgeon who did everything he could. <laughs>
2: but he died before he could get in to
1: see him seeing him watching R- richie buscemi on stage has made more atheists than christopher hitchens uh, he's a hideous monstrosity is what i'm saying Do we? but he's affordable so the
0: two cops that pull him over are fake cops and they're just Protecting the road up to this meeting, and they see that Strebeck and Friday have pagan cards, so they let them head on up to the gathering. And when Friday and Strebeck get there, they are given goat leggings to wear as part of the pagan ritual. And then, for some reason, Strebeck breaks into some prop comedy and pretends that his goat (laughs) leggings are playful dogs.
1: Again, who is the comedic character in this film? It needs to be Joe Friday. And every time Tom Hanks does his shtick, which again, in a different movie, I would adore. Right. It's called Bachelor Party. These are the happiest goat leggings in the world. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's very funny. <laughs> it just doesn't belong in this scene. I do like the fact, though, that they're just given goat leggings. It's, you know, kind of membership has its privileges. That's nice. <laughs> they don't look cheap. I i, I appreciated no, that. They're goat leggings. Yeah. Hanks also makes a joke about the party being like the Rotarians. That's where Freddie's like, hey, we may get a little crazy on Saturday nights, but nothing like this, pal. Then we see on a billboard, it says Pagan, and we see what that stands for, which is people against goodness and normalcy again, I, I think it's kind of funny it's just real dumb but I, I like that kind of dumb and hanks then somebody comes around with a tray of pills and they're like hey you want some of these and hanks is like hey i'm gonna take a bunch and then he pockets a bunch of pills. they look
0: like a bunch of commemorative
1: holiday mike and ikes there's some good and plenty action for sure
0: and then they're handing out free mugs of grog or hallucinogenic horse piss or whatever they're drinking and then the ritual just starts proper and then we see this high priest he shows up on this tall platform up in the air and he starts to summon this entity Ga'ul and it's all a bunch of watered down temple of doom nonsense and the high priest he says prepare the virgin and then the priest he releases the bat that was stolen from the zoo and then Mm -hmm. he tosses the lion's mane off into this small pool of water below and then they bring out this virgin in the wedding dress that they stole from the landlady at the rundown motel and behind them are these long flowing red banners that look like Nazi propaganda. It looks like the wall, you
1: know, the movie yeah. where you see Bob Geldof crossing his arms on stage and whatnot. Yeah, it's it has that vibe to it. Except that there's more rhyming in this, I think.
0: When they bring out the virgin, her name is Connie Swale. <laughs> the
1: Virgin Connie Swale.
0: She's played by Alexandra Paul, who was the girlfriend in Christine, mm-hmm. and she was on Baywatch. In Melrose Place. Was she also in Back to School or was that somebody different? Maybe. We'll say maybe. Probably not, but probably so.
1: The thing I think of, I associate with Alexandra Paul these days, she was kind of front and center in that uh, Who Killed the Electric Car documentary. Like, she was a big proponent of, like, alternate in- energy. And
0: She was front and center when she kicked Ed Bagley Jr. out of the way? Beat it, Ed Bagley Jr. I'm front and center. What are you talking about? Are you serious? It's me, Ed Begley Jr. My whole house is run on nothing but my own feces and this little pedal pad that I use.
1: Look, we all believe in the same thing. But we want to put a pretty face on this, Ed. I mean, look at you you're like one of those puppets from the Genesis video. And I was on Baywatch.
0: Look, you got Baywatch money, okay? I was in Transylvania 6-9000 and singing it elsewhere. I don't have the kind of money that you have,
2: alright? This is all I've got. I'm the one who's pushing green technology, alright?
1: Boy, we should send you to the Sahara, Ed. Say it. Don't spray it, you know what I mean?
0: I don't even drive an electric car. I drive a car that's based on the technology from the Flintstones.
2: It's powered by my feet.
1: Whatever, Ed. I can barely even hear you anymore. Anymore. Yes it's me Alexandra Paul I am the leader of the electric car movement yes I'm willing you to do it.
2: Bullshit! I've had breaches on my face I was 11 with years anyone.
1: old Yes oh a documentary of course I'll sit down with you
0: My carbon footprint is negative. I have lived on my own urine and feces. It is the only thing that I've eaten and the only thing that I have drank for the last 37 years. I've eaten the same turd and drank the same cup
2: of piss.
1: Listen, if you talk to Ed, I wouldn't do a long interview. He's been drinking his own urine, if you know what I mean. And by what I mean is that he's been drinking his own urine. (laughs) What movie are we talking about again? Dragnet. So they're at this big party with the Virgin Connie's well, as soon as friday sees her he's like oh boy my heart's grown three sizes today i've
0: got a place under my house in the crawl space right beside a dead german shepherd and my youthful piano teacher she'll fit snugly in between the two.
1: Oh, oh i've got just the dress from an ex-girlfriend to wrap her body in
0: I can't wait to feel her skin wrapped around my skin as an extra layer to keep me warm at night. The Virgin Connie Swale will make one hell of a flesh-on-flesh blanket.
1: Short hair, easy to cut. I appreciate that.
0: So they push the Virgin Connie Swale off of this ledge and she falls down into the pool of water below and our two heroes jump into action and they dive in the water to go save the Virgin Connie Swale. During this fight, Strebeck pops up and he's wrestling the boa constrictor that was stolen from the zoo while Joe Friday goes over to save the Virgin Connie Swale and it kind of looks like, I don't know, the trash monster from Star Wars.
1: Or the snake from Conan the Barbarian, the original 1980 Joe. John Milius movie. It's that kind of thing.
0: And so Striebeck to get out of a pickle, he just reaches in his pocket and pulls out a handful of those hallucinogenic Mike and Ikes and just throws them in the snake's mouth. Hey, and- I got some bitties! And then the snake gets all fucked up. Or he just kills it. I think he kills it.
1: Man, whatever gets you through the night here, you know? Like, <laughs> you're being attacked by a giant snake. There is part of the reptile brain, no pun intended, that is going to kick in at that point point. just be like, it's me versus snake. And whatever my th- high-minded thoughts about preserving God's grace great creatures are going to fall to the wayside when it's wrapped around me trying to smother me
0: joe friday and the virgin connie swale and strebeck they all escape into some steam tunnels and then they find themselves in an exit where they are confronted by this angry mob of pagan middle-aged losers and then strebeck immediately commands respect by shooting a gun into the air and then everybody just tries to escape and run off and the virgin connie swale during the tussle she pulls the goat mask off of the high priest and she sees that it is reverend Worley, Bo. shocking
1: yes and if i may chad when the big mob confronts our heroes what uh-huh. they're chanting is kill the good and if you describe the goings-on of this party uh-huh just like hey we're gonna get together there's gonna be guys walking around with pills we're gonna listen to some music you gotta wear goat leg but we're gonna give them to I don't you i want to wear goat leggings it's gotta be goat leggings you're going into it saving fifty bucks, but then we're gonna take a virgin. We're gonna throw her into a pit. This giant snake is gonna eat her while we watch, all whacked out on pills and booze.
0: Does that virgin have a like a friend or a sister? Or something I can talk.
1: Then we recruit one. But if you describe that evening to me, night
0: time is the right time.
1: Night time is the right time. And, and then if I ask you, like, hey, what if the virgin escapes? Oh, we're just gonna all chase her down like a mob, chanting. <laughs> kill the good and I saw that description on meetup I would pause for more than a minute Chad I would be like mm-hmm. I mean I don't want to hurt anybody but I kind of want to see big ass snake eat somebody <laughs> And all those free pills? That's a profit maker if you ask me. Like, I'll take a couple, but I'm going to pocket a bunch.
0: I got a buddy of mine. Listen to this. He repairs used vibrators and then sells them overseas. I think he can hook us up with some sort of distribution channels.
1: (laughs) Hi, goat-legging pill distributor. The
2: only way I can get off is by using my vibrator, taking my pills,
0: and creating these long (laughs) scissors that I'm going to attach to this album. Bino's hands. I'm going to dye his hair black.
2: <laughs> what is going on?
1: I don't know. I'm going to call the whole thing Frankenweenie. Isn't that absurd?
0: Joe Friday and Striebeck they find the car that was stolen from them earlier. They jump in it and then they escape from the angry mob as they fire guns all over the place. And as they drive off, I think Joe Friday and the Virgin Connie Swale, they fall in love, or at least that's what the music tells me is going on. And then they arrive at the Virgin Connie Swale's house and it looks like she bought it from Miss Ivan. It's all pink and,
1: (laughs) you know, idyllic. It's Barbie's dream house for serial killers. (laughs) Like, I really admire how you leave your windows open open ma'am that's really handy for me
0: i like how you don't have any drapes or blinds you can see right into the house i like how the bedroom you can see right into the bathroom and the shower is clearly right across the other side you don't have to have a telescope or anything to see what's doing in there could you help me move this couch into the back of a van
1: how long has that street lamp been out nobody been around to fix it good
0: so joe friday and street they head back to police hq where they relay what happened at the pagan meeting to captain gannon and in the scene they kind of dance around and it's played for laughs, but it yields no laughs. And Strebeck says, hey, I have directions to the compound. So they call up police commissioner Jane and everybody's going to meet at the compound to show them, hey, this pagan ritual really happened. So everybody shows up and the place is empty. There's no evidence. There's nothing that says, you know, this satanic happening went on the night before. So Joe Friday and Strebeck, they get kicked off the case by orders of police commissioner
1: Jane. And this is where Harry Morgan is like, Joe, you're uncle would be real disappointed in you i hope when you go home tonight that you masturbate with sandpaper instead of lotion that's that's a direct quote
0: <laughs> joe friday brings the virgin connie swale down to uh the police station to go through mug shots to look for any familiar faces and while she's turning the pages across the way joe friday is reading his alt-right erotic fuck fiction in his magazine that he bought And he's got these big saucers of eyes like mm, never thought about doing that before and the virgin connie swale she doesn't find the guy they're looking for and joe friday says don't worry virgin connie swales don't worry the guy who abducted you and dressed you in a wedding gown and threw you off the ledge into a pool filled with a boa constrictor as a human sacrifice is probably a hundred miles from here he's definitely not around
1: and quite frankly not that creative wait till you see what i've got in store for you virgin connie swale (laughs) thrown in a snake pit ha child's play wait till you have lotion lower tea in a basket what are you, about a size 14 Virgin Connie Swale? Perfect. Uh, I'm a size 12. Let me ask you a question. Would you fuck me, Virgin Connie Swale? <laughs> I'd fuck me.
0: So the Virgin Connie Swales heads off to go do whatever she does when she's not being abducted or looking through mugshot photos. And Joe Friday heads over to visit Strebeck at his apartment. Now, about this time, Emo Mush, he shows up and he's in this catering slash rape van uh, for some Italian restaurant. I think it's Alphonse and Gaston's. And Joe Friday goes up to uh, Strebeck's apartment he knocks on the door and then a fellow female police officer opens the door to some real sexy saxophones Mm -hmm. I did like that there's an empty cardboard box for Miller High Life right
1: outside the door
0: maybe that beer earlier belonged to Strebeck
1: hey you think Detective Strebeck you really know how to greet a man
0: it turns out that Strebeck and this blonde female cop were having sex mixed with a little light bondage involving handcuffs around Strebeck's
1: wrists sure good for Strebeck you know they've been dating for almost 12 hours sometimes you need to experiment some gets a little boring after a while you want to keep it alive strebeck gets
2: dressed and
0: he comes out of his apartment and he suggests that he and joe go get sushi but instead their car blows up
2: i'll bet it was Emil muz that was behind it bo
1: yeah and joe friday says as much and then also says my hat was in that car so hank says i know you've had a rough morning how about we go get the best coffee in town cut to a strip club at 10 (laughs) a.m
0: filled with pasty lowlifes the kind of people that you would imagine sitting. Front and center in front of strippers that are working the 10 a.m. shift during the week. The
1: thing that is unrealistic about the scene is the quality of dancers at 10 a.m. You are in Los
0: Angeles. You know what I mean? They got to work their way up.
1: Maybe so, man, but that still feels generous. At any rate, I actually think the gag where the lady bends over between her legs as Joe Friday is drinking coffee and he just does the ma'am, you know, I think that's kind of funny. I think, again, I, I like Dan Aykroyd as this character for the most part the strippers are
0: wearing pasties on their nipples dan Aykroyd doesn't seem to be as hypnotized by these women as he did when he saw that 43 year old woman's nipples maybe their nipples are what does he mean that's what dave foley said as soon as you see the nipples then you've seen everything
1: all right maybe he's just like these are too small i need an older (laughs) woman with broader hips that way i can fit inside big knuckles
0: long fingers A giant cock. That's the kind of thing I'm into. Have you met George (laughs) Baker? You know who should have played Striebeck in this movie? Gary Busey. That would have made this movie an instant classic.
1: Oh, shit. Yes, you're right. Joe, Joe, I know where we can get the greatest cup of coffee that you've ever had in your whole life. What are you doing? Are you going to sit there and tell me that is not the best coffee you've ever had while she is shaking some of the best titties you've ever seen right in your face? Come on, man. Piss on the Yankees. Piss on the Indians. Joe Friday, I want to arm wrestle you right now. Come on, did I ever tell you
2: that I once killed a werewolf? My nephew had this souped up wheelchair. He was a cripple.
1: I don't mean to come at you out of nowhere, but how would you feel about you and me forming a band? I'll be lead singer. You can do backup or vice versa, brother. I don't care. Pegasus, Pegasoo. Pegas- come on, Joe. Say it with me. Come on. I can even do that weird thing where you're like, uh-oh. I can do that, man. Streetbeck and Joe Friday. They come up with this plan
0: to follow up on the stolen chemicals based on a lead they got at the strip club and it turns out that all of this is kind of connected with the pagan investigation and this bribed informant tells him that this illegal drug lab was being hidden by a front pretending to be a fresh wholesome milk factory located on the warner brothers studio lot between new york city and the san francisco Wharf.
1: it is one of the most sound soundstages sound stages you've seen in a while <laughs> but again i find that shit real charming
0: i expected there to be like a, a churro kiosk and a t-shirt
1: stand I'm just a woman coming through in a, like a pale blue <laughs> dress with a a megaphone that's just like, and if you'll see right now, they are shooting dragnet. A couple of Vegas girls and some Battlestar Galactica warriors walking along. Hey. That is Dan Aykroyd talking to Tom Hanks right there. They're uh two of the stars of the movie, and you can see they get along pretty good. Uh, These seem pretty happy. So we're just going to keep it moving right through this scene and we're everybody.
0: walking and we're walking and we're walking. Come on, people. Thank you so much. Cut.
1: Oh, were you shooting? Oh, jeez. Okay. Every Everybody back to one. To later that night and we're outside this milk factory and three
0: ethnic youths show up there's a uh, one of them is black one of them is asian and one is hispanic
1: united <laughs> bit a ton of crime and they
0: want to bum a smoke from joe friday which leads one of the street youth to pull a switchblade on joe friday and joe friday just starts beating him up and then the asian guy pulls out nunchucks
1: man how the <laughs> 80s love nunchucks let me count the ways Immediately, Joe Friday is like, hmm, I think the proper name you're looking for is Nunchaku, and I know how to handle it in 27 ways. And then just immediately disarms the guy and like takes his nunchucks and hits the dude with it and hits one guy with the top of a trash can like Sonny Corleone. He beats up these teenagers that are all 25 years old in short work. Which is why the last line of the scene doesn't land, because all of them are 45. And he goes, <laughs> and on a school night too. And you're like, oh, who cares? I mean, what are they? Are they teaching in the morning? <laughs> Is it a roving gang of substitute teachers? <laughs> So
0: about this time, tank comes rolling into frame with this battering ram front that has a little plate that says, have a nice day at the very tip of the spear. And the tank crashes into the milk factory and milk goes everywhere. And now for some reason, Joe Friday is in a hazmat suit and Strebeck pops out and he's the one driving the tank and he's in a hazmat suit as well. And it turns out that they've raided the wrong place. And the milk factory is next to the Gaston and Alphonse catering front, which is where Emil Muzz uh, was driving the van earlier so essentially what had happened was that the chemical factory was over in the italian catering building and not necessarily associated with the milk factory directly
1: right the way i kind of read this is that maybe both owned by pagan but like one is kind of like there's a false front and then there's the real front kind of thing Um, this shit is way too complicated for the movie that we're in here. I feel like, like there's a thing later where they dump all the magazines out on the lawn of, uh, the, the bait mansion,
0: right? Somebody was moving out of college (laughs) and they were like, we got to put them somewhere. It's like, why bring them back? It's just the dumbest. <laughs> They're driving on the road, and Strebeck is watching TV on his watch, which, this was a real thing. Yeah. Because in 1983, Seiko had a TV watch that had this giant battery pack, and you could tune in and watch, like, VHF channels. Ah,
1: uh, it was simpler times, Chad. Uh,
0: you know what? They were ahead of their times with technology. They were ahead of their times with corrupt religious leaders. I think that's yeah, it. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's it. That's as forward-thinking as this movie gets. If you forgot about the police abuse, don't worry, there's more on the way
0: on the tv we see police commissioner jane and she's just shitting all over the current mayor of los angeles because the whole city's just going to hell in a handbasket (laughs) okay you know what give it a couple of years until rodney king shows up and that verdict rolls out you ain't seen nothing yet sister
1: i'm the law and order commissioner (laughs) so christopher Plummer is speaking at this event whatever it is and then says and by the way jerry caesar the lisping smut peddler that bo and chad like so much Thank you. the cat has donated a million dollars to the moral advance movement. <laughs>
0: why is he doing this? This would never happen. Hugh Hefner wouldn't give a million dollars to this guy. Bob Guccione, no. Larry Flint, you better wake up and apologize to Mr. Flint for even thinking about that. But
1: that's why this movie is so overcomplicated because we learn later that Jerry Caesar never did any such thing. Christopher Plummer just announced it. And then when Jerry Caesar meets him and is like, what the fuck, man? He's like, no, no, no. I. This is how we get the mayor to your place. It's all, again, this is way too convoluted. Don't worry about it.
0: We cut back to Police HQ and it's nighttime and Strebeck and Joe Friday, they're going to part ways. And Streebeck says, hey, Joe, what are you doing at night? What's going on? Tell me about yourself. I'm your partner. We should be friends. And Joe Friday's like, listen, Bob, you don't need to know about my personal life. What I do and what's under my house is none of your business. So Joe Friday drives off and Streebeck follows him on this BMW motorcycle that he has. Streebeck's got a pretty good life. And uh, Joe Friday shows up at another fake house on the back lot of the movie studio, and he goes inside. And then Striebeck does a little comedy about Nightmare on Elm Street. It's not very funny. I mean, Hanks is trying to do the best with what he's given, but it really falls
1: flat. It's fun to see Tom Hanks being old Tom Hanks, but it's not a very good bit. And then he wonders aloud, I wonder what kind of hose monster might be inside there. And out comes Joe Friday. Daddy
2: wants to fuck. (laughs) Daddy wants to fuck.
1: Yeah, there's a, <laughs> a there's a finger that they find in the lawn outside the house and
0: <laughs> Joe Friday comes out with this little old lady right. and it turns out that it's his grandmother. Bo, you're not gonna believe this. Her last name is Mundy. What? Crazy. What?
1: Hey, Granny and, <laughs> Monday! It's your birthday. How about we go celebrate your birthday?
0: Oh, Strebeck crashes this date that uh, Joe Friday's gonna have with his grandma, and they go to the famous Brown Derby restaurant. And Joe Friday, it turns out, has invited the Virgin Connie Swale to join them for dinner. And Granny Muddy, she's so happy because she is clearly worried that Joe Friday is gay.
1: I don't think gay is the biggest fear here. I think what's going on in the basement is a concern as well.
0: And she'll be alive, Joe. She'll (laughs) be able to talk to us. She won't be gagged and bound
1: like all the others, Joe. This isn't the Lars movie again, is it, Joe? (laughs) No matter how many (laughs) times we watch that together, I still think it's weird. I'll never not think it's weird. (laughs) But the the fucked up thing about this whole arrangement is they get there and the maitre d' is like, oh, we have your bottle prepared. And Joe Friday is like, what the fuck? And Tom Hanks, cops do it. He says, hey, I had Don Perignon delivered to the table. I I stopped off and I called. And he says, "Like, I thought you want the most expensive thing on the menu on your bill tonight because you're a public servant. How funny is that? And Joe Friday is just like, "Mm mm-hmm. And meanwhile, I, as a viewer, was like, the fuck you <laughs> just charged, let's be conservative, $200 worth of champagne on a uh-huh. dinner that was going to be 150 max.
0: Oh, yeah. That was before their asses hit the seats. You were already
1: in for $200. Right, because it's not like Pep Streeback at any point was like, hey, let me pick up the bill. He was just like, no. Hey, how about we get bottle service? What? I don't even know what that is. (laughs) That sounds simultaneously stupid and expensive.
0: As well as very titillating and exciting.
1: I'll I'll feel like a real player if we have bottle service.
0: During this dinner, the Virgin Connie Swale looks over at a different table, where it turns out that Reverend Worley is having dinner with the police commissioner as well as Captain Gannon. And then the Virgin Connie Swales, when she sees the Reverend Worley, she goes into the homina, 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 homina. And she's freaking out because that was the guy who dressed her up in a bridal gown and chunked her off of a ledge to be eaten by a snake.
1: Joe Friday is like, well, time to take out the trash. Except that's not what he says. He actually, when Tom Hanks is like, hey, you need to be sure. You need to be very sure that you're right about this. That <laughs> heck right, says, look, I'm just enforcing the public health code that there is no free roaming vermin allowed in the restaurant. So he gets up and goes to the bathroom to chase Whirly down.
0: He confronts him while he's taking a shit which I do not think this is the first time that Joe Friday has confronted a suspect in a public bathroom while he's defecating.
1: When he confronts Whirly, who has taken a shit on the other side of this door, (laughs) Joe Friday just starts with, my partner and I witnessed that little torchlight picnic you threw last night. We're going to put you where your kind always ends up, in a seven by seven foot gray green metal cage in the 15th floor of some hundred year old penitentiary with damp, stinking walls and a wooden plank for a bed. Sure, this city isn't perfect. We need a smut-free life for all of our citizens. Cleaner streets, better schools, and a good hockey team. But the big difference between you and me, mister, is you made the promise, and I'm gonna keep it. And the rightfully... (laughs) Why I never did that in Drama Club, I don't know. Because you didn't give a shit about anything. No, that's true.
0: If you had, I would have been the guy taking the shit on the other side of the wall. Thanks!
1: I appreciate that. Hey, we could have been partners. <laughs> we were too lazy to do anything. What is the, the least path of resistance to a diploma? Wait, you got a diploma? <laughs> i mean i don't have a copy or anything i i presume <laughs> that i graduated i went on a college so i i assume that the college people looked at some paperwork i don't know i i try to stay out of it quite frankly
0: joe friday goes back he drags whirly out to the table to where
1: yeah the commissioner and harry morgan are having dinner and he's just like hey i got your hero the guy whose ass you've been kissing through this whole movie i'm taking him downtown see what that's
2: outrageous. Yeah. Joe, let this man go.
0: And then the Captain Gans like, Joe, this is unacceptable behavior. Your father uncle uh, Joe Friday would have been really upset by this I'm gonna need your badge you're off the force and I'm like yeah you know what the police union fuck that you're not taking this dude's badge without a full investigation
1: they take away all of uh, Joe Friday's credentials right is this where right. that, that happens then they leave the restaurant all
0: sad and then Granny Mundy's like hey Strebeck let's get on the back of your motorcycle and maybe you can go and tie me up
1: it was vice versa it was street. Streebag being kind of a granny chaser where he's like hey have you ever had a chili dog on the back of a motorcycle you sexy old thing and she's like well I'll never have hop on i think i think your nephew might get it wet tonight and if you play your hey, cards nor- <laughs> i know hey
0: nor hey strebeck let me ask you a question i realize if your motorcycle was a hot dog would you eat it? would you cover it in chili and onions Don't jerk me around, Strayback. It's a simple question.
1: It's saying Chili Dog in that voice. It led me astray. (laughs) Chili Dog. If my motorcycle was a hot dog, I'd eat it. Say, you you think you could power a motorcycle on nothing but Chili Dogs? I do alexandra paul did a documentary that killed it listen up guys if you think you can power these motorcycles on nothing but chili dogs do you understand the carbon footprint when you come in and you slaughter pigs and cows and chickens all right oh what you need to be eating veggie dogs Oh, Ed. Uh, if you're gonna power your motorcycle. what is that ed oh chili i've been behind chili dogs for years you've been behind nothing for nothing ed you've been riding my coattails you have the pinched face of a cartoon character
2: I was supposed to do the voice
0: of the vampire grandpa uncle and hotel oh, transylvania 6.
1: i can't even understand him anymore. if anyone would this, like because... to talk about chili dog powered motorbikes i will be happy that
2: was my idea that was my idea and howie mandel stole it he stole my idea steven
1: first ate his boogers i said
2: it the whole thing turned out to
0: be a dream so joe friday it gets in his car with the virgin connie swale and then he proceeds to reenact the final night of the black dahlia's life the <laughs> <laughs> Two of them drive up and they park in a parking lot underneath the Hollywood sign that doesn't exist.
1: Are you familiar with the term bisection?
0: Why would they do this? Why would they fictionalize a parking lot under the sign?
1: And also, why just take her up there if both of these characters are known to be these like uber conservative characters, like they're going to go make out? Like, why don't you have them in public doing roller skating or something that would be more befitting their characters as opposed to let me take you somewhere obscure, somewhere out of sight of everyone, just you and me, a place where someone named Muzz or Scuzz might sneak up on us?
0: The thing I like most about this parking lot under the Hollywood sign, other than the fact that it doesn't exist, is that it is uniquely located in such a way that no one can hear you scream. Try it. Scream all you want. No one can hear you. It's acoustically perfect to remove your skin from your body.
1: You know what else I like about it? The altitude. Sister, you can roll a body right off the side of this thing and it'll go for miles. By the time the wildlife gets a hold of it, they'll (laughs) never know where you dumped it.
0: And if they find what's left over, they're not gonna know what you are. They're gonna wonder if you're a Human, a Sasquatch, a raccoon, or quite possibly a combination of all three.
1: My guess is your next of kin will be notified that a coyote skeleton was found in the desert.
0: These two lean in to almost kiss, but as they do it, Emil Muzz, he just picks up the back of the car because they're now in a Yugo and just flips the car over bumper over bumper. Then we see Emil Muzz come up and he just pumps a shotgun and points it at Joe Friday's head. And in any other movie, the next time we see Joe Friday, it is going to be either in a closed casket or at a crime scene that looks like a pumpkin full of red jello
1: exploded. Right, it's just a collar and a, and red spray <laughs> like Marvin in the back seat of Pulp Fiction.
0: What well, the fuck am I on brain details?
1: <laughs> yeah, I hit a bump. So then we cut to Tom Hanks. Well, Striebeck starts doing his Joe Friday voiceover. Hey, it's Tuesday morning. Hey, it's crazy. I'm fucking another lady cop. Look, I'm shaking (laughs) out some rubbers. There's none left. I've been fucking all night. Which is what happens in the scene. He shakes a bottle of Titans and nothing nothing doing. Out comes some dust. And then he, he calls the virgin Connie Swale. He calls her mom. Well, no, he calls her house. And her mom oh, that's answers. That's right, because she lives at right, home. Right, she lives with her mom. Because she's 17. And there's a whole conversation that's like, No, Joe never stayed out all night before either. I'm worried too. What are you wearing? Tell me slowly. I know I'm in bed with another lady right now, but I'm open to suggestions. Do you have any rubbers? Could you get over to my house? Yeah, it's the
0: apartment right next to the parking lot where that con blew up a couple of weeks ago. My bedroom is BYOC. Bring your old condoms. You'll know which one it is. There's an empty cardboard box of Miller High Life out front. Or two and three. And it's the '80s. You know, HIV is rampant. That's why I'm having sex with condoms. You know that I'm rapping if she's clapping. Speaking of rapping, stick around to the credits of this movie. I
1: think you're gonna be pleasantly surprised. <laughs> he goes to Harry Morgan. He was like, "Hey, nobody seen Joe Friday all night." And they, Harry Morgan does a real good who cares it's pretty good <laughs> <laughs> and he says if you want to start trying to find joe friday start checking sanitariums radar why are you wearing that dress <laughs> clinger is that the second jamie Farr reference in this show it feels like we started doing <laughs> the <this> show yesterday <laughs> at least this season then like tom hanks is like joe friday's my partner and he storms out of the office and he sees an old buddy of his who's like, Hey, Pep Strebeck, what's going on, man? And uh, the guy looks a little sloppy and his hair's a little scruffy and stuff. And Tom Hanks is like, Hey, nice to see you. And then he stops and goes, Hey, wait a second, mister. If you know section 804.10.22.12, you eat hut, hut, hut. Gives him basically the Joe Friday speech. And it, nothing really comes of that. It's not like he becomes Joe Friday at any point. It's just like he has this moment and kind of shakes it off. He's kind of
2: rubbing off yeah, on
1: right, him. I guess. It's like they're both rubbing off on each other or whatever. Let's get to the graveyard. Alright, so here is the plot of the movie Laid Bare, where Jerry Caesar shows up in a solid cold Rolls Royce, which is pretty sweet. <laughs> and meets Christopher Plummer at the cemetery. And this is where we learn that the contribution wasn't Jerry Caesar's idea. It's just something that plumber announced
0: i saw your so-called announcement about me giving you one million dollars you can do yourself a favor friend you can try the lottery <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. christopher <laughs> plumber's like you know we <laughs> had to do this so you're gonna have this big bait party tonight and you're gonna give me this check at that party and because of that the mayor's gotta be there is the plan
0: reverend you got balls as big as choice bills
1: Man, how Damney Coleman says, choice bills is one of the great things in cinema. He calls him Reverend. <laughs> yeah. You got bald and biggest truth billed. Choice bills. It's so good, man. And so sadly, he leaves the scene. And I know, man, I want a whole movie that's nothing but Jerry Caesar and his, like, a day in the life of.
0: Commissioner Jane pops up behind this headstone in the graveyard, (laughs) and she runs over to the Reverend, and she says,
2: I don't trust that man.
0: And then Reverend Worley says, that socially retarded hedonist thinks he's going to be alive
2: tomorrow.
1: (laughs) And the commissioner, too, is just like, you're so deliciously evil. Like, it is, we're playing these characters. Characters big people. And then Hanks, we cut to him and he's got the Polaroid that has the Muscle Beach bit on it. And he's like, hey, maybe I should go here and check it out. I think this could be a clue. So he goes to Muscle Beach where he finds Emil Muzz weightlifting. And Hanks just pulls a gun on him. Yeah. And is like, hey, you're going to tell me what Joe Friday is or I'm just gonna shoot you in the street. Nobody bats an eye. Yeah, everybody's just like, hey, out of his way. He's a police officer doing police officer things.
2: Yeah, you blow that guy's brains out. Make sure you wipe down that bench. Just get gym etiquette, okay? Hey, everybody
1: cleans up after every set, alright? Even if, if your set is pulling a trigger, brother, doesn't matter. Somebody's still gotta use that station after you. Can I get a spot over here? Don't make me call Craig. Craig is our manager. He The <laughs> policy's right there, man. You check it out. Look, I'm dialing craig right now clean it up clean it up
0: strebeck asks o'halloran who's got these hundreds of pounds over his head to confess as to where he can find his partner and so we cut to the getty observatory at night where joe friday and the virgin connie swale are tied up like they're dudley do-right and pearl pure heart and then revan Worley shows up and he unties the virgin connie swale and informs joe friday that his plan is to kill joe friday what is Reverend Worley's plan to go to the porno mansion for the 25th anniversary to of get, Kate, money, get a check for a right. million dollars that may or may not be real. Then he's going to kill a cop, Joe Friday, and then he's going to kill Jerry Caesar with poison and gas the and the mayor. This seems like a very convoluted plan yeah. with a whole lot of like <laughs> opportunities for things to go sideways.
1: The whole idea is that he's going to control both the pagan cult of ne'er-do-wells and lawbreakers and also be the figure of the moral... Action mothers, mama.
0: mothers, mothers, calm your chest. right.
1: Like, he's gonna be the dude who is basically putting the city at war with itself, and he's gonna profit on both ends of it.
0: All right, good luck with that, head. So,
1: after uh, we realize like the commissioner is in on it, we know, like, oh, well, like he's got to get out of town at some
0: point. He drives off with the Virgin Connie swale in his limo at the exact same time. Strubeck shows up on his motorcycle, or hell, it may be a glorified moped for all I know. Looks like the kind of thing that Ed Bagley
1: Jr. would drive, and and so he gets Joe Friday out of uh, the bondage. Then they get on his motorcycle, and there's a whole bit about like, "Hey, hug me, Connie Swale," and then he hugs him so tight, Tom Hanks is like, "Whoa!" <laughs> When he's driving the motorcycle.
0: And they're being chased by a bunch of henchmen. It's pointless. Right.
1: And they just go off-road, which is the benefit, I guess, of being on a motorcycle, and escape the car full of thugs. And then we cut over to the 25th anniversary bait party, which is the mayor showing up and Whirly the reverend just behind him. But we're right. watching from the bushes with Joe Friday and Tom Hanks. Back. Yeah. And Joe Friday is like, I don't see the Virgin Connie Swale in the, the car with the reverend. And he's basically saying like, I need to get in that party and I need to go after. Her. But Tom Hanks is like, Hey, I don't mean to be the guy that spoiled the party or nothing, but you're not a cop anymore. Joe go home, Joe. Yeah.
0: And by the way, my name's Pep. It's not Bob or Mr. Or junior. It's Pep.
1: Friendship starts with first is Joe. And so Hanks does what Joe Friday was going to do, which is slips behind a car and kind of sneaks into the party. And then we get one of our sadly few remaining scenes with Jerry Caesar. I know.
0: It's it during this baitmate 20th anniversary party, Worley and the mayor walk up to Jerry Caesar and the mayor says, "Enough with the civility nonsense. Do you have a check for a million dollars to give the Reverend or whatever his name is here? And then Jerry Caesar says, "All in due time, Mayor." And the Reverend says, why don't I hold it till the final presentation? So Jerry Caesar hands over the check by holding it between his index finger and his middle finger. But as the Reverend reaches out, he wiggles it back and forth and teases it with yeah, him.
1: It's a real dick move. It, it's awesome.
0: Then Jerry Caesar says, we're about to start the talent show portion of the evening. Reverend, why don't you pull up a pew? I think you're going to find these girls socially redeeming.
3: <laughs>
1: yeah. So, so sure <laughs> enough, they do go to a talent show. And Jerry Caesar at one point, like it's, it's one of the bait mates singing the star Spangled Banner and Jerry Caesar leans over to Christopher Plummer and he's like, Hey river, how you like the python on that girl? Think of the star Spangled Banner. You surprised? <laughs> <laughs> Just fucking with him. Christopher Plummer is like, hmm, yes, I, I expect there'll be a lot of surprises this evening. <laughs> Outside,
0: some dump truck shows up and just spills out a small hill of pornography made of the stolen 25th anniversary
1: issues of Right, Dave. but again, why bring this back just to burn it? I don't, I don't anyway. know. Anyway.
0: And then the Italian catering truck shows up and it's there. And then a tanker truck from the milk factory is there, but it's now full of the poisonous gas. And Strebeck is watching all of this while he's hiding in the bushes. Pushes. And then Strebeck climbs into the back of the catering van and he knocks a guy out using a telephone book. Uh-huh. This was the guy who's kind of overseeing the command center of this operation. And then Strebeck jumps on a phone. He calls up Captain Gannon and says, hey, I'm up with the baby 20th anniversary. You need to send up the SWAT team. The Pagans are here. Down yeah, all over the place. And Gannon's on the phone, his wife's sitting beside him and his face says, I'm going to fire this Strebeck right now. And you're like, I don't know that he's going to send up the SWAT team based on his physical demeanor
1: yeah for a second i thought they were the old couple from uh arachnophobia they're just gonna end up dead with their fingers in the mutual popcorn bowl <laughs> mother we're gonna watch what i want to watch tonight all right we'll watch who wants to be a millionaire Back
0: at the mansion, the reverend leaves with his million dollar check and his henchmen just start pouring gasoline all over this giant pile of pornography outside the mansion's gates. Amongst the gasoline dowsers and henchmen is Strebeck, and he's now wearing one of the catering jackets doing his best to draw attention to himself by comically dousing gasoline on the magazine. Yes, He's just like, hey, hey look at me. Look how I can splash gas in a very hilarious fashion. Squirt, squirt, squirt. Let me draw attention away from my Face by holding the gas can
1: right beside my head. Who's that asshole pouring gasoline out of his mouth? Christopher Plummer g- goes to Amel Muzz, and Tom Hanks is like overhearing this conversation. And Christopher Plummer is like, "Hey, I'm going to Acapulco with the Virgin Connie Swale, and you know, you hold things down here, Amel. I promise you'll be fine." And then Christopher Plummer tosses his cigar. And lights all the smut on fire, setting uh, that ablaze. Then we cut away from all those doings to Joe Friday, who is leaving the scene and is nearly run off the road by the cops who are driving dangerously and putting civilians in harm's way. And now he's on the other end of that.
0: Dude, it's a caravan of police cars and SWAT team members and paddy wagons and tanks it is a an onslaught of military style response to whatever the hell is going on at this porno mansion
1: he's just like oh i remember the good old days when i could respond with a military authoritarianism Anyway, then we cut to the compound where that's exactly what's happening. Like SWAT and pagan guys are shooting at each other.
0: Dude, they're just spraying bullets all over the place.
1: A statue's dick is shot off and that's kind of funny, I guess.
0: And then out of nowhere, the tank from the milk factory raid shows up with the have a nice day placard. It comes up and crashes through the front gate of the porno mansion and then goes over the top of the pile of flaming pornography. The music that's playing during this scene is really... Real reminiscent of Indiana Jones music. There's a lot of like, ba-ba-da-ba, boop, 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 bitty, boop, boop. it's kind of like how the opening music sounded a lot like, it's like do that, but only different enough that we don't get sued.
1: Maybe it's just the context of what was happening on screen, but the music also reminded me a lot of the music in Stripes when the RV starts using yeah. the flamethrower and that kind of thing.
0: Ira Newborn did the music for this movie. Look, John Williams, he had a plagiarism case on his hands if he wanted (laughs) it, but he was like, just let him do his thing. It's fucking dragnet. As the tank rolls in and destroys the flaming porno, the front muzzle um, rotates around and kind of like knocks over some bad guys. And then Joe Friday pops out with the shotgun and just starts pumping people full of buckshot. And then... Pep Striebeck screams out, thank God, it's Friday.
1: Man, again, it's one of those moments of like, holy shit, this civilian just drove a tank into a crime scene and opened the door of said tank and just started firing a shotgun.
0: How did he get in the tank? Did he just like overwhelm the person who was originally in it and just commandeer it on his own because he wants to have sex with the Virgin Connie Swale?
1: I know 27 ways to render a human being unconscious using just my hands, mister. I grabbed the guy with the keys. I gave him what I call the Friday nerve pinch.
0: You can up that to 37 if you include my feet because as you know, I have webbed toes.
1: As does every American and Canadian and fish person.
0: Strebeck then takes off his henchman slash catering coat, and he just starts beating up his former fellow henchman. And then evil was he's going to shoot Strebeck in the head, and Joe Friday shows up and says, hey, you, get your damn hands off my partner. And then Strebeck, he lets out this Pee Wee Herman laugh. At least that's what the subtitles told me that he did.
3: Ha. <laughs> yeah.
1: Jeffrey's like you're pointing a gun at my partner hey pep cuff him
0: hey did you hear that he called me pep we're friends now he was my first name we've turned a corner our characters have evolved and grown since we first met
1: i also really like when you you see pep strebeck like disrobe his uh pagan garb when he uh, does it he yells like hey everybody it's me pep strebeck <laughs> <laughs> fucking cartoon character hey it's me baby kermit
0: Jerry Caesar comes out oh. and sadly is going to give us his final scene of the movie. And he goes over to Joe Friday and he says, Joe Friday, you saved my house and my gals. You get a lifetime subscription to bait, Field, and Cream, Dolly's. And I was like, Dolly's? one yeah. on the warehouse. That's a new yeah. one. I haven't heard about Dolly's. What is that? That's the
1: one where every pictorial has a, a pee shot.
0: Oh, I thought it was like a lot of homages to nine to five and the best little whorehouse in Texas. Like kind of like an early Dolly Parton cosplay magazine.
1: It's a country music enthusiast magazine. It's not as sexy of the others, but it's more informative.
0: Jerry Caesar says, Joe Friday, you can have anything you want. Money, broth, automobiles, anything. You just name it. And Joe Friday says, how about you get your hands off my suit?
1: Okay, you got it, Joe. And then he leaves the film by looking at his Playmate model sidekicks and going, You girls hungry? Let's eat. That's it. Out he rolls to Denny's or something <laughs> late in the evening.
0: That was crazy, wasn't it? Tonight at the 25th anniversary. Do y'all remember like four hours ago when there was like a gunfight going on and then a tank
1: rolled in? Excuse me, can I please get some more syrup over here? Oh, this is crazy. Girl, did you hear them say there was poison Gath? They were going to poison <laughs> us with Gath. Here's the thing. Who do you think won the talent show? That's the real question of the evening. But in fairness, we, we did not see the last four acts. So we'll do that after. We're going to have a makeup day. You don't have to perform again.
0: (laughs) JC, I got a question for you, though. That check you gave to the Reverend, did you really give him a million dollars? The check that I gave him uh, is not on a real bank account. It is from Millennial Mall Madness, a board game that um, I'm working on. And I signed the check, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar. So it's worthless.
1: Also, I backdated it to the year 3722. By then, the Morlocks will be running the show. About now, the sun is coming up. <laughs> yeah, we're finally getting to the end of this movie, finally.
0: Is this compound just littered with bullet-riddled cops and henchmen?
1: The thing is, in <laughs> this movie, nobody actually gets shot. You see a couple oh, okay. of people fall down, but this is a very cops- Ow, and ow,
0: robbers. ow, ow, ow. I spray my ankles. Guys, time out, time out. Stop. Stop. Seriously.
1: Stop shooting. It's a lot of like, oh, grabbing my side and falling and stuff like that. And
0: I need a bag of ice over here, guys. <laughs>
1: This hurts, but I'm kind of okay with that as a decision. You know, like, I don't need this movie to be bloody. Like, I don't need this to be heat with this kind of comedy.
0: Dreambeck shows up and says, hey, I overheard the Reverend Worley is headed to Mexico in his private plane with the Virgin We got to move it before they can leave Captain Gannon. For some reason, he shows up and he's like, hey, Joe, you're going to need your badge. I never turned it in or filled out any paperwork to strip you of your job. You're still a cop.
1: Quite frankly, I checked out a long time ago, Joe. I moved some papers around. I signed some forms, but that's all I do, Joe. Anyway, here's your badge back. Do you want my job, Joe? Are you looking for a promotion? I'm ready to get out of this racket. My last partner was Brad Pitt. Let me tell you a story about a box we found in the desert, Joe. I've had it.
0: Half my day is spent sitting on the toilet. 100% of my day is spent reading The Farmer's Almanac.
1: Joe, all my friends are dead, Joe. I'm alone. It's me and my wife. And we haven't been able to talk in 15 years.
0: I gotta be honest with you, Joe. We were never friends. We were never really even acquaintances. If she hadn't gotten pregnant, we never would have gotten married, Joe. The worst part was she lost the baby in the eighth month. I never loved her, Joe. You know who I loved? I loved your father, Joe. Your father, Joe Friday. He was your dad,
1: not your uncle. You know what I spend my days thinking about, Joe? I think about the sweet touch of your uncle. Slash father. He was both. I think at the time that because I was the smaller, he would just pull me into his lap sometimes. It was both tender and playful. Joe, it was the happiest days of my life.
0: He would pretend that I was a ventriloquist dummy, and he would tug on the back of my shirt and I would make my mouth go up and down. And it brought him so much joy, but it brought me so much pleasure.
1: He brought over a stuffed toy brought from the bedroom of that miscarried child, Joe. And we pretended to go to the fair, and he won that stuffed animal for me by guessing my weight was the happiest night of my life. We couldn't go out and do that in public, Joe. We couldn't go to the fair, so he brought the fair to me. I called that squirrel Sammy, and I have it today.
0: I used to carry it around in the trunk of my patrol car, and whenever I met a frightened child... Or let's be honest, a frightened adult. I'd introduce them to Sammy, and when they met Sammy, their problems didn't seem nearly as big as they were earlier in the day. That's because your dad, Joe Friday,
1: having a lot of confusing feelings right now
0: i've got to go track down the virgin connie swale who's about to be sexually violated by a, my favorite men, television menace. oh
1: yeah let's get to the creepiest thing in this movie like backloaded the eek on this one so joe friday hey remember remember joe friday and pep street back there they are uh, in pursuit of connie swale they're, they drive to the airport but the plane is already taken off and it flies over their heads and they're like ah oh, she's gone then there's this moment where You see Christopher Plummer on the plane with the virgin Connie Swale, and he kind of caresses her cheek, and she's just like,
0: Oh no. He uses his middle finger to rub right down her
1: jawline. Yeah, it's a real creepy move, and she's like, You're a freak. And his response is like, You'll get used to it. And it's like, Ugh oh no not this late let's not do human trafficking so late in the film you got to give me a heads up on that one so that's real gross but it turns out our bad
0: guy has gotten away and he is going to violate this young woman
1: that is what the film would lead you to believe until chad man Uh, it, like this jet flies right next door to Christopher Plummer. And it's like right. the the LAPD paint job. There's a flashing blue light, which I appreciate.
0: There's a siren that wails, like
1: woo! And Joe Friday meh, meh. rips off his meh, meh. oxygen mask and is like, you down does the finger point
0: what prevents Reverend Worley from just nosediving this plane into the mountains of Southern California
1: you know narcissism mostly
0: why would he land it's like well I've been caught I'm not going to jail
1: well Virgin Connie Swale take my hand we're going to hell together tonight
0: the plane lands and Reverend Worley is arrested. The Virgin Connie Swale, she smiles at Joe Friday, who is like 20 years her senior. And then they lean in to kiss again. But then Pep Striebeck shows up and he's like, hey, look at me. I'm in the middle of you 2 I'm preventing you guys from
1: kissing. Oh, oh. Joe Friday is like, hey, don't you have some police work you should be attending? I've got a whole lifetime to catch up on here, Pep. Or whatever. He just goes to make out some more with the Virgin Connie Swale.
0: He puts her in a police car, which made me nervous. I was like, what deviant fantasy is running through this guy's head? He's now got his captive prey. Out of the frying pan, into the fire, Virgin Connie Swale.
1: You know, one day I picked up Pep, Virgin Connie Swale. It was the funniest thing. He had handcuffs on. You wouldn't want to try something like that, would you, Virgin Connie Swale? I'm just asking. It's fine if you don't want to. Hop, up, but now you're wearing handcuffs. Why don't you come down to the basement with me, Virgin Connie Honey Swale. that's a little play I did <laughs> called the real dragnet there's one of those dragnet tag scenes where it's like reverend worley was charged with uh attempted murder on two counts and yada yada and there's a gag where he's like he's currently serving 44 life sentences which makes him eligible for parole in four years and it's like okay I'm fine yeah, yeah. Wah, wah. and then it ends with another shot of Joe Friday at his cruiser, rubbing the hood, doing his narration as Tom Hanks shows up with his pretty lady cop girlfriend.
0: Isn't he riding on the the motorcycle that she's driving, like squatting like a frog?
1: It's real weird. I don't know why he's sitting like that. Maybe he's constipated. He's trying to work something a out. The Paul method of bowel movement. Certainly could be. <laughs> you can't rule it out like tom hanks would have known about that that's one thing we can we can be sure of
0: friday and strebeck they go walking into work and joe friday says i had the pleasure of spending the evening with connie swale and strebeck says don't you mean the virgin connie swale
1: and joe friday gives them that look and the bump 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 plays his beady eyes
0: and this sinister smile that says she's not a virgin anymore and nobody and i mean nobody will ever hear from her again because i cut out her tongue
1: you know Striebeck, you can have as many virginities as holes and the answer to your question is no she's not a virgin in any of them anymore yeah it's it's terrifying
0: and then the movie ends with the remix of city of crime it's a city of crime it's this rap with tom hanks and dan Aykroyd, you know working the mic that
1: tells the story of the movie
0: do you think that tom hanks son uh the one that goes by chet hayes do you think that maybe this was the only piece of work that he was ever exposed to by his father and he just thought hey I'm going to follow my father's footsteps and become a rapper. I think it's
1: what he saw and said, Hey, I can do whatever the fuck I want. And if my dad ever says anything, I'm going to show him this. And that's Dragnet. Yeah. It's a pretty terrible movie. You know, all right. It is not a great movie. No, no one's arguing that point. I would say that Dan Aykroyd's performance in it is dedicated, if nothing else, and interesting a lot of times. And the Dabney Coleman stuff is tremendous
0: it's one of the worst movies tom hanks has ever made and it's one of the best movies that dan akroyd's <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah that's the right venn diagram for the kinds of movies we talk about on this show this skews pretty high on this spectrum as far as like this is watchable entertainment
0: dude hanks made the burbs he did all those dan brown novel adaptations he was in that movie with halle berry that the warchowski brothers or sisters did cloud atlas i
1: like cloud atlas i'm a cloud atlas apologist i like that movie i think this may be one of akroyd's best you start
0: going through the imdb on him you got blues brothers 2000 and caddyshack 2 and it's like man Dragnet don't look so bad
1: I like looking at the himselfs on the Dan Aykroyd page and it's nothing but like the UFO survivalist podcast. Dan Aykroyd, glad you could be here today. Tell us all about your experience with UFOs and men in black. So that's Dragnet. It is Dragnet. Chad, we don't stop here. No,
0: no, no. The, The good news is that we have a movie coming up in the next episode that everybody can agree is universally loved by children, adults. People across all cultures. There's nothing controversial or questionable about the film's source material or the legacy it left after leaving its primetime television slot over on CBS. And I'm speaking, of course, about the Dukes of Hazzard.
1: Oh, I thought you meant the Night Porter. Yeah, Dukes of Hazzard.
0: Who the hell picks these movies out for us?
1: Is this the one with Jonathan Knoxville?
0: Yeah, this is the one with Jonathan Knoxville. This is the movie where everything is wrapped up in the confederacy
1: again couldn't be better timing
0: no i wasn't sure that we would address a movie that was more racist than wild wild west and we might be able to do
1: it oh well that's good news
0: yeah it is again please send your emails to bo at pick
1: yes i check those <laughs> never but I'll tell you what, I never say this, but you can actually find me on the Twitter. At Legion Podcasts is the, the Twitter handle. So if you message me there, I do actually read that on a semi regular basis.
0: I don't even know if I have Twitter. I don't recommend it. No, it's a cesspool of horrible, horrible nightmares. Unlike our show, which is full of nothing but positive and mirth and merriment and, and just good old good times.
1: Yeah, stories of stolen stuffed animals, of deceased children that's really our sweet spot
0: littered pornography and people shitting like ducks
1: i can only assume this episode is about seven and a half hours long and i think if you've made it this far listeners then you deserve something special and uh in in typical pick six fashion we don't have anything
0: we'll see you in two weeks everybody